0: I'm
1: quite sure I, sure I can knock you out.
2: I am I am Richard, with this crappy rainy weather we've had for what seems like weeks, that reggae song really makes me think that I'm on the beach, relaxing in the sunshine, enjoying it. That was a song called The Gorgon by cornell campbell it's from 2014's original motion picture soundtrack for i am the gorgon and it's available on
1: itunes we probably should have done like the creature trilogy because i feel like we've been living in a black lagoon for the last month maybe maybe we'll we'll start to see some sunshine and and warmer weather here and maybe this this podcast will be the thing that brightens everyone's summer up starting things off with Some classic Hammer horror.
2: Yeah, and I hope as we head east to Pittsburgh that we'll find better weather here in a few weeks. And that the Gorgon, reggae music, better weather, all of that ties into our theme this month. Tell everyone why we're talking about such things.
1: Well, you know, a year ago we did a Hammer trilogy and we thought it would be fun to do another trilogy of Hammer films to also tie into the upcoming Monster Bash, which we are now... What less than a, by the time people hear this, we're certainly probably weeks away. Weeks. But as we record this, we're doing it a little bit earlier. We're still less than a month away, I think, at this point from hitting the road and traveling. I was gonna say west, but no, we're traveling east. Yep. The Monster Bash and uh, of course the House of the Gorgon U.S. premiere is going to be happening there. The latest film from Joshua Kennedy. We're gonna have. Martine Beswick and, and Christopher Neem are going to be there. Unfortunately, Caroline Monroe won't be because she's got some illness that she's uh, preventing her from traveling. But uh, we're also going to have uh, Veronica Carlson, who isn't in one of our movies this week, but she's going to be present. It's going to be a lot of hammer goodness and a lot of monster goodness at the bash. So this is going to get us in the mood.
2: So what movies are we talking about? Well, we're talking about The Gorgon from 1964. That, of course, was chosen because it kind of ties in with that US premiere of House of the Gorgon. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde from 1971. Martine Beswick, the lovely Martine Beswick, stars in that. And Dracula 80 1972 from what year? 1972. (laughs) That ties in with the guest appearance of Christopher Neim at Monster Bash. That's our reasoning behind this month's meeting and this month's episode. And I'll go ahead and call that to order. We have three new members this month in our Classic Horrors Club Podcast Facebook group page. Let's have a roll call for them right now. We have Nelia Romero-Florido, Dave Fonto. Dave heard about us on MKR, so a little crossover there. That's very nice. Thanks for checking us out, Dave. And then JC Ben. JC Ben is already active in the page. He... Posted an awesome picture of Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster. I don't know where that came from, but I really liked that. Yeah, art. it was really,
1: really cool colors in that. That's why yeah. I had to comment on that. I was like, that's cool. I haven't seen that one. Yeah,
2: and also a video that's a mashup between Karloff's Frankenstein and The Devil Rides Out. It's a link to a YouTube page called Cine Fan Club, and I guess JC operates that. There are a bunch of these short little mashup videos on there, so that's a fun place to visit on YouTube and thank you JC Ben and everyone else for joining the conversation on the Facebook group
1: page. Yes, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining. We don't have any
2: voicemail this time. I think it's, we're recording like Rick, Richard said a little bit early. If any come in between now and the time we actually post, I will add them to the episode with little introduction, no introduction. But uh, we do have a really, really nice email that came in. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just read this. Uh, It's from Nicholas Hatcher. He says, Hey guys, just wanted to reach out and say hello. I've been listening to the podcast for about a year now and it has become my favorite new podcast to listen to. Your show reminds me of the B-Movie cast when Vince Rotolo was still around and that is a very good thing. I always enjoy hearing your voices and your commentaries on the various films you cover. I also love the fact that you do themed episodes. I have a suggestion, and I'm not sure you've done this already because I can't find your older episodes, but a month dedicated to my eternal Scream Queen crush, Fay Ray and her horror films would bring a smile to my face. Anyway, keep up the good work, and thank you for the podcast and the website. Thank you very much, Nick. That is a a lovely email that leaves me speechless, so Richard, take it away.
1: Well, yeah, the one thing that really really blew me away on that was uh, the the reference to the B movie cast Vince you know is a legend in the podcast community and and he was an inspiration for at least me to be able to to do this podcast I know I was a guest on his show several times and I would occasionally have people ask you know why aren't you doing a podcast and at the time I was like there were so many other podcasts out there I didn't want to do one by myself I hadn't met Jeff yet I think within six months of, of meeting Jeff, I mean, he mentioned wanting to do a podcast and we launched the, uh, the Classic Horse Club podcast and we've been doing it now for more than two years, going on two and a half years. So the reference to, to Vince, I don't think we're quite up to be movie cast legendary status yet, but just the comparison makes me smile and warms my heart. Thank you very, very much on that. And as far as the older episodes go, recent episodes are available uh, on the same feed, or the Classic Horse Club feed through iTunes, or if you go through SoundCloud, they're there. I know on my website, uh, kccinephile.com, I always put the most current episode. It's right there on the homepage. And, of course, we both you know include links to the, uh, to the SoundCloud page. And from there, if you go straight to the SoundCloud page, you can uh, get all the episodes available there. They're all listed. There's uh, apps that are out there that can access SoundCloud. So you can get that, like, on Roku or what have you. The older episodes, we, we did put some of them on this new feed, but we just couldn't carry all of them over when the downright creepy feed, you know, was going through some changes and we decided it was time for us to find our own feed. Those episodes, I believe, are still out there. You would just have to look for the downright creepy podcast feed again on iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. And. You can find all of our episodes, all going all the way back to our very first episode from January nineteen nineteen, January twenty seventeen, when we did the King Kong episode and kicked things off. They're out there. You just have to dig a little bit harder for those old ones, but they're definitely out there. And we will periodically. I think it's been quite a while since we have, but we'll periodically upload, re-upload, a remastered older episode into this new feed. Uh, just to make it a little bit more convenient, but they're all out there. And, and thank you very much for for your email. Warmed my heart. And you mentioned Fay Ray at the end of this episode. Of course, as always, we're going to tell you what we're covering in in July. But I can give you a sneak peek. And yes, we've decided we're going to do a Fay Ray month in August. We lost Fay Ray in the month of August, and uh, that's the month that she passed away many years ago. At the age of 96, and so we are going to be covering three Faye Ray films. We don't know which ones yet, but we do know that Faye Ray is coming in August, thanks to you, sir. So you've got that to look forward to. Faye Ray is on the way.
2: Yeah, all you guys have to do is write us a nice email, and we will do a show on whatever you want. We are easily bought.
1: Uh, and you know what? 20 or $30 goes even farther. I mean, what well, we could do a series, uh, an entire podcast. No, I'm kidding. We're open to suggestions. We've got some ideas percolating thanks to some other ideas. The trilogy idea is something that's, that's we've been talking about. But we did kind of bump Fay right to the top because I, I thought that was a cool idea. It's, it gets a chance to do some really, really classic films and... Uh, I, I had a feeling that Fay Ray Month was coming up, uh, a month that we could tie into it. So it just happened to work perfectly. We want to listen to all of your feedback and ideas. And so how do we do that? Do we want to do that? Now? Yeah,
2: that's a good idea. So um, Nicholas emailed us at ClassicHorrors.club at gmail.com. I mentioned the Facebook group page. Just search for the Classic Horrors Club podcast on Facebook. We're also... Oh, we have a phone number, too. Yes. <laughs> that's how you would leave a voicemail. Sorry about that. I space that off that would be 616-649-2582 616-649-CLUB
1: and you and I are also both on Facebook so you know what you could also reach out to us that way as well with through Facebook Messenger or ask for our email and send it to us directly however whatever works for you uh, we're more than willing to, to, to make it work and, and let your thoughts be known here on the show
2: We have a couple other items of old business, some more feedback. Joe Carson, who is very active on our group page, thank you, Joe, posted an Apple News article that is calling Godzilla King of the Monsters a summer masterpiece. I have seen a lot of positive headlines and I haven't read a full review out I there. I saw the
1: thing about the fact that they are including the original Godzilla music. Yeah. And, and apparently a, a part of the Mothra music. So, I mean, that that gives it an extra star yeah. right there. I know I'm setting my expectations I know. high I know. and I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm feeling really good about this. I yeah. think this is going to be good. We're just days away from seeing it ourselves here. We get to see a See, a couple days ahead of uh, everyone else who hasn't seen it, I guess, already, the early previews, but uh, I'm looking forward to it.
2: Yeah, I am too. I, my expectations are getting built up, but uh, I'll try to temper them. I've liked what they've done in the past, so if it's any better than those, I'm probably going to love it. And then just a couple comments. Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network has never seen Dr. Je- Jekyll and Sister Hyde. It's one of the few that he's never seen. So, Chris, Hello hope we can sell you on watching it at least one of us
1: it's gonna be tough to find which i'm going to talk about that that's one of the tougher ones and that's been the problem with a lot of these hammer films but in recent years we've been getting a lot of blu-ray releases of some of the more well-known titles
2: and i'm going to be talking about that as well in new business because the shout factory frankenstein created woman blu-ray is coming out
1: they have been cranking them out, so I'm sure there's plenty of news on that, on that front to, to share.
2: And then Lance Lumley says that the Gorgon is one of his faves. So Lance, good. We hope uh, we pay it justice for you. The one bit of old business I wanted to go over is in our last episode talking about Godzilla and his friends and foes. We mentioned several times Varan Varan Veran, Varan. Varan. <laughs> One of my favorite bands from the 80s was Varan Varan.
1: <laughs>
2: anyway, I know I was not particularly familiar with him, but he kept coming up and we were like, is he Toho? I think so. And where did he fit in the timeline and all that. So I just decided to do a little research. This movie came out in 1958. It was from Toho called Daikaiju Baran with a B. It was directed by Shiro Honda. It had a lot of the same crew of Godzilla, which came out in 54. And actually it was, according to one list, the fifth Toho Kaiju movie. There was Godzilla, Godzilla Raids Again, Rodan, which we covered from 56, The Mysterians from 57, and then Varan, or actually Daikaiju, Varan. It was heavily edited and released in the United States four years later in 62 as Varan the Unbelievable. It played here on a double feature with first spaceship on Venus which was also heavily edited edited so not a great dynamic double feature there it didn't do very well the story is very much like godzilla so i wonder if maybe it was too familiar that they didn't go further with it or include him in more movies but you know the description is that a prehistoric behemoth is unwittingly awakened from hibernation due to a U.S.-Japanese military experiment on its watery lair for economic means, where it proceeds in attacking Japan. Sounds almost like Godzilla. That's Godzilla, yeah. Yeah. And he looks kind of like Godzilla, too. He's sort of got the body, maybe, of Gamera, but he looks like Godzilla, and he's more spiky. If you're not familiar with him, he was described as being 50 meters high, weighing 15,000 tons... His powers or weapons are gliding flight at Mach 1-5, head and back horns, sharp fangs, and claws. And if you look at pictures of him, he does kind of glide, and he's got that like Spider-Man webbing under his armpits, so he (laughs) he he looks like a flying squirrel or or something coasting through the sky.
1: At least that gives him some logic to how he flies. Unlike you know the one time where Godzilla just kind of balanced on his on his tail and flew. But
2: Uh, Varan appeared only again in stock footage in Godzilla: Final Wars in 2004. He was not in any other Godzilla movie. He. Supposedly is in continuity, though, because he was mentioned or falls into the timeline of two other movies, Godzilla against Mechagodzilla from 2002 and Godzilla Tokyo S.O.S. from 2003. Now, supposedly there is a second generation of Varan that appeared in Destroy All Monsters from 1968. This is a much, much smaller version, 10 meters tall, 60 tons, still has a gliding speed of 1.5 added to his weapons are poisonous spines. There is speculation this is an infant version of Varan. That's what I found out about Varan. I, I used a, a great website I discovered discovered called TohoKingdom.com, which is a, a terrific resource. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and I just wanted to learn more about it since I was very uneducated last week. And if anyone else has more information and wants to share, please contact us and we'll include it in the next episode.
1: Yeah, that's a good website that that really kind of sheds light on a lot of different... There's so many, you know, and so many of the monsters, I mean, there's, there's so many of the monsters look familiar by the time you start watching other non-Toho things. I mean, I, I, if I remember correctly, wasn't one of the Godzilla suits used in an episode of Ultraman with like a slight variation? It, it happens. Some, some of those monsters really kind of start looking similar, and, and in some cases they I know that they did use some of the same suits and made tweaks along the way. You know, I really want to see Varan now. I, I mean, I like I said, I have it, and I, I don't believe I've seen it, so it, it's it's been on the list for a long time, and if I have seen it, it's...
2: Well, it sounds like we should watch the original, because the the second one is totally different. There's nothing with the atomic testing. It's They really, really chopped it up way more than they even did The American version, the, yeah. Yeah, the American version. So I don't know if... Well, actually, I did read that the, the original version was made available at one time uh, and probably still is. We're checking the vast library to see what version we have here. What I'm wondering about it is the tone, because we had talked about how there was a shift in tone after the first few Toho Kaiju movies, and it seems like it would fall right in line there where it has a a more serious tone, because if you go Godzilla, Godzilla raids again, Rodan, I don't know about the Mysterians, but then Varan, chances are it's going to be another darker, more serious Toho monster.
1: I think this is the Japanese version, actually. How, How long is it? It comes from Tokyo Shock. It says approximately 87 minutes.
2: I believe that's it then, because the U.S. version is only 70 minutes.
1: Yeah, and it actually... No, it does say Japanese version copyright. Yeah, and then... But it does actually have... I think it's got both versions on it, because under the special features, it has restored television broadcast version.
2: Yeah, it was originally shot to be a TV movie, and... I don't remember what conditions caused them to pull out of doing that. It was then finished as a theatrical movie.
1: I think the fact that this comes from Tokyo Shock, I think that it would have to be. Yeah. So this is uh, this is the right version to watch. So nice. I'm putting it over here. I'm going to watch this perhaps this weekend.
2: <laughs> That's old business. Let's wrap it up, clear our throats, and go to the trailer for our first movie,
1: The Gorian
0: said that every legend and myth known to mankind is not entirely without some truth. It was here, under a full moon, in the little village of Van Dorf, that an ancient legend suddenly terrifyingly came to life.
3: Doctor, you'll perform an autopsy. On a body that's turned to stone?
0: 1000 years Magera the Gorgon had kept her evil peace but now this strange unearthly creature returns to petrify every human being who crosses her path <laughs> Starring Peter Cushing as the Doctor did his strange talents direct him to medicine or murder Christopher Lee is the Professor Confronted by a conspiracy of silence that paralyzed a village with terror. Akira died 2,000 years ago. It's her spirit we're concerned with today. It's found a resting place in somebody. With ah! terrifying realism, she comes to life and brings death to all those who look upon
3: her face. Carla! I am waiting for Carla, Mr. Hyde.
0: The Gorgon
1: petrifies the screen with horror. She had a face only a mummy could love. A monster from an ancient age of history comes to live at Castle Borsky outside the village of Vandorf. Doctor Namorov and other villagers publicly deny her existence. But secretly accept the truth. Investigating his son's death, Professor Jules Heitz discovers this conspiracy of silence in Vandorf. But when he meets his own untimely demise, his other son, Paul, arrives and, with the help of Professor Carl Meister, is determined to put an end to this specter of death hovering over the land. The year is 1964, and we hadn't done a what happened in the UK in 1964 yet. So I figured we'd take a look and see what's happening across the pond. Uh, Of course, the queen was Queen Elizabeth. Pretty much any film from the 50s (laughs) onward is going to say the queen is is the queen. Uh, The prime minister was Alec Douglas Holm. Not a name I'm familiar with. Top of the Pops debuted on BBC television on January 1st of that year. The infamous Great Train Robbery, which you think you're probably familiar with, people might be aware of it. The eleven men involved in that, they went on trial in 1964. Ten-pound banknotes were issued for the first time since World War II.
2: Those are awful heavy. How do you carry those in your wallet?
1: I, I don't know, but I, you know what? I'd give me a ten-pound banknote. <laughs> I'll carry it. I'll find a way. Prince Edward was born on March the 10th, uh, and he was the. I believe the third child of Queen Elizabeth. At the time, he was third in line for the throne. He is now the 11th. A lot of things would have to happen <laughs> before he would take the throne. Liverpool won the uh, Football League First Division title that year. BBC Two launched on April 21st. It was uh, the UK's third television network. So they were a little bit behind the curve. Even though they their first television network... Actually launched before we had a TV network in the states. World War II definitely kind of curtailed their their television production history a little bit. The Beatles' first film, *A Hard Day's Night*, was released on July sixth, and they performed on the Ed Sullivan Show that year. The Rolling Stones released their first album in 1964, and they also appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. Two of the biggest rock bands of all time. Winston Churchill. Retired from the House of Commons at the age of 89. Ian Fleming passed away in 1964, August 12th to be precise, at the age of 56 due to heart disease. I didn't realize he had died that young. His novel, You Only Live Twice, was released the same year. It was released after his death. And uh, here's the first of many Doctor Who references in this episode. Christopher Eccleston, who was the ninth doctor. He was born on February 16th, and Bonnie Langford, who played Doctor Who companion Mel in the 1980s, she was born on July 22nd. Popular uh, music of the day, You Really Got Me by the Kinks, and a lot of Beatles music was popular. (laughs) Go go figure. Can't Buy Me Love, A Hard Day's Night, and I Feel Fine were all chart-topping hits that year in the UK. And, of course, we had a lot of films that year. A lot of good movies came out in 64 over in the U.K. Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, Devil Doll, Evil of Frankenstein, Tomb of Igea, and Mask of the Red Death with Vincent Price that same year. We had Goldfinger with Sean Connery. I think that is perhaps the best of the classic Bond films. It certainly ranks up there. And other big films of the day included Doctor Strangelove, Zorba the Greek, and Zulu. So uh, that's what was happening in the UK in 1964. 1964
2: brings us The Gorgon from Hammer Films. What did you think of The Gorgon, Rich?
1: It had been a while since I'd seen this one. Um, you know, it was, wasn't probably one of the first Hammer Films I saw. I, I probably saw it at some point in the 1980s when a lot of Hammer Films were being played on Superstation TBS... Uh, And then I didn't see it for quite a few years. I remember I had it on VHS. I think I might have recorded it off of AMC. I saw it then, and then again, a pretty large gap of time before I saw it again. And I got the, uh, what is it, the uh, Icons of Horror Hammer Collection that uh, has four films, and it comes with Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, Taste of Fear, and The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, which is four films that really have nothing to do with each other for random films thrown out for good measure. I think the fact that I've seen it a few times, but there's long gaps in between viewings. I I like the film, but it's not one of my favorites from Hammer. There's some problems with it. There's a lot of good in it. You've got Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, and they make any film better. But as we're going to talk about, the movie, at least for me, kind of falls apart in the final act and a lot of it has to do with the poor special effects. I think better special effects and perhaps a slightly better script would have made better use of what was really, it, it felt like old-school classic hammer, good music, you got a great cast. It just seemed like, as as good as it, it is, I think it could have been a lot better, again, had it had a slightly better script and definitely more money spent on, on special effects, which I know I've got a few uh, notes about what could have been in regards to the special effects and then what they ended up going with for, you know, they kind of cheaped out and unfortunately it showed. What about you?
2: Well, I'm kind of surprised because some pre-show uh, chatter, I, I had the impression you liked it a lot more than that.
1: I, well, I I really do like it. I don't want to say that I don't like it. I just, you know, I started kind of rethinking a little bit in the last couple of days. It's like, okay you know, what What bothered me about this? And I really got to thinking about the special effects and I'm like, yeah, it really did kind of fall apart in the last act. So I think upon closer, you know, analyzing and, and putting my notes down in paper, I thought I probably didn't like it as much as I, I, I implied the other day, which is not to say that I don't like it. Um, I just, I feel like it could have been a lot better than what it was. It certainly is not the worst that Hammer did by a long shot. And again, it's got Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. But I think it could have been... I think there's something there. I think it could have been a lot more.
2: Hmm, Interesting. So we're really closer on it than I thought we'd be. However, I think the reasons I didn't... I don't like it as much are different from yours. The special effects didn't really bother me that much. But some of my... So I'm going to go ahead and do this little history. So this was a point in Hammer where they were starting to come out of their classic era. I mean, they had done the Frankenstein, the Dracula, the mummy, and those movies all have a look, you know, that's, you know, the Hammer look, lush sets and deep color and just very well filmed set direction, everything. The Gorgon has that, but not quite to the high, to the level of that. And yeah, I would agree. it's also an original monster or creature that they were bringing. They weren't adapting something else. Yeah, there's Greek mythology, but this isn't really an adapted uh, story. And, and of they that. twist
1: and turn that around quite a bit. But <laughs> yeah, so it's
2: it's definitely lesser Hammer to me. Uh, and this was '64. They were filming at Bray Studios, which is what contributes to this Hammer classic look. Definitely, for sure. And they were only there a couple more years. They did uh, Dracula, The Prince of Darkness, Plague of the Zombies, and Reptile all in 66 there at Bray. And then their last film at Bray was The Mummy's Shroud in 67. So there was a shift then, and we'll talk more about that when we talk about our other two movies. I think that's where I'll stop on the history now. But my point is this, you could just kind of tell... There was a change in the air, it's sort of the end of that of Hammer at its peak. Uh, you say Cushing and Lee, yeah, but Christopher Lee's not in it in full till fifty one minutes into, you know, an hour and a half movie.
1: I think he's in it a bit more than he is in Dracula A. D. Oh, well, that's, that's true.
2: That's uh, true. so you know, that's not really a selling point. And there are so many things I love about this movie. I, I if I if I pick apart the pieces, and I think there's been other movies we've done like this before where I love all the the parts, but I just don't think they fit together for me uh, to be, you know, a really good movie. I find it, it's hard for me to s- sit through it. I get antsy. And uh, oh. that's certainly not the case with, with our other two movies that just, you know, click along at, at lightning speed. But again, it's just, it's it's the sign of an era coming to an end, I think. And while it's just almost the highest standards that it had, it just, it falls short for me.
1: Hammer, you know, you start to finish. You start 1958 proper, I guess. You could go farther back. But when they start doing 57, 58, that, that time period when they start doing Frankenstein, Mummy, Dracula, and, and they start that cycle of films going up until you know, really when the cycle ended in, in what, seventy-four was uh The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, I think. I think. So. And you know, there, again, there's a few films after that. That that era, there's a lot of change that happens from the late fifties to the the mid seventies. A lot of different um, you know, changes in style and the way the film was made, that music, what have you. But I mean, that's a very big gap of time, too. And, and society changed drastically. And I think that, you know, a lot of times people will watch a Hammer film from, from you know, one year and then watch a Hammer film from 10 years previous and expect the films to be the same. Like if you watch a Universal film, for example, a Universal film from the 30s or 40s, a lot of times there's there's not a lot of difference in style... Or in production I mean yeah by the 40s the Universal films were B films a bit more than they were in the 30s but there's not as visually or musically not as much of a change but films didn't change that much in the 30s and 40s whereas late 50s to mid 70s society changed a lot music changed drastically films changed horror movies changed drastically. I mean, you had the big shift in, in 68 with Night of the Living Dead, and then by 74, as Hammer was dying out, we had The Exorcist and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, movies were going through a huge change. A lot of times people will, will I think, unfairly, and I'm not saying that's what she did here, but will say, well, this, you know, this is a Hammer film, but it doesn't feel like a Hammer film what time period was it made? And so I think there's a, there's a lot of different styles to hammer films. There's a general feel to hammer movie, but then you've got to take into consideration where does it come in? Was it early, mid or late, you know, hammer era? Because that's going to depend on, are they, you know, going with the classic monster or are they going with an original monster or are they going with something that's more of a thriller? Um, there's a lot of different styles to Hammer films within the Hammer genre. And so I think that the Gorgon has a feel of classic Hammer. Uh, I think you're right. I think it was coming at a time when there was just a, a lot of change happening. And, um, and you wouldn't know that if you just picked it up off the shelf, no, and stuck
2: it didn't. in and watched it. But yet it, it somehow feels that way. It feels like... It feels... Like, it's a a retread, sort of. It just doesn't
1: feel... You talk about Christopher Lee's smaller part in this movie. Um, I mean, that's the thing with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. A lot of times, you know, a film will say it stars Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee when uh, maybe they're there for a scene or two. The name Not even together. Not even together. You know, that happens a lot. What was it, the, the Vincent Price movie where that technically stars the three of them, but they don't even feature in the same scenes together. There's a lot of times Cushing and Lee were used for name recognition. Even Peter Cushing, I mean, he, he's in it, but he's not in it as much as he is in some other films, I don't think. And certainly Christopher Lee is not, you know. But as I said, he, he is in this one at least a little more than Dracula A.D., which I, when we get to that, I was actually surprised at how little he had on screen in that film. I mean, he's great, but I think it's just an example of sometimes they're the star of the movie, but they're not necessarily the one getting the most screen time.
2: Yeah, and let's remember that point, because when we talk about that, I want to I bring that up again. You mentioned the screenplay. It was by John Gilling, who was, uh, I knew him as, or know him as director of several Hammer films. I didn't realize he had written so many screenplays, uh, several for Hammer, and this was one... Uh, was about the fifth or sixth last screenplay he wrote. There are some, I don't want to say plot holes, it makes sense, but there are some, it's very heavy handed. I mean, uh, spoiler alert, the identity of of who, okay, so here's the other thing that's weird to me. It is, but it isn't the actual like Gorgon that's here. It's her spirit that is possessing somebody. Right. So that's kind of odd. But so the, the, there's a mystery of, who is the identity? And Peter Cushing all along is has think he's figured it out, and he's not telling anyone. Well, it is so obvious from the very beginning who that is. So that's just kind of drug out, or they didn't use it to to be to turn into a, a twist or a surprise. So that was kind of squandered. It just felt like a maybe it was rushed a little bit uh, the screenplay. But I I think I have more problems with the screenplay, the story itself, than I maybe do in the execution of it.
1: Well, I mean, John Gilling, I mean, has got a lot of great, I mean, he's had 57 writing credits. He did Trog, which is not a Hammer film, but he, he did The Mummy Shroud, and he did several non-horror Hammer films, like The Brigand of Kandahar and The Secret of Blood Island. But he also had 44 films he directed, you know, and that includes The Reptile, Plague of the Zombies, uh, The Mummy Shroud, he did The Gamma People, which is a fun film. Did you know he actually directed *Bella Lugosi? He directed Vampire Over London, or really, aka Mother Riley meets a vampire. Huh. So uh, that's kind of cool. I mean, I mean, how many Hammer directors can claim to have directed Bela Lugosi? You know, he's got a lot of cred. I mean, he you know, between directing and writing, I agree. Though there was there was something in the script. It seemed to be lacking in this one. It, it lacked. I don't know a certain punch. It just lacked. It lacked. It was lackluster, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It's just there was something missing. I don't know what it was. That's where I was like, you know, my initial thought when I saw this film was like, well, I really enjoyed it, you know. And I like Peter Cushing, and I like, you know, Christopher Lee. And then I got to really thinking of, well, okay, you know, Cushing and Lee weren't in it as much. And, yeah, it was was definitely kind of slow moving. And then, yeah, I was like, was it satisfying as much as I thought it was? No. I think a lot of times people go into a Cushing or Lee film and... They let the presence of Cushing and Lee, which they enhance a film, but they sometimes will let Cushing or Lee's presence kind of help them gloss over yes. the the other inferiorities of the film. Sometimes the presence of Cushing and Lee can help a film, but it doesn't wash away the fact that there are deficiencies in the film. And I think that... When you watch, you know, films that have them in it, certainly in films in which they have lesser roles and they're being used for name recognition, you've got to sit back and say, okay, is this how good is this film really, or you know, what other aspects of the movie? If you were to take Cushing and Lee out, would the film work? To me, I think that this is one of those where their presence in the film is great, but. There's some deficiencies that, that shine if you take a step back and take a look at it, which is what I've done in the last couple of days. I got perhaps a bit more of a critical eye and began thinking, "Is like oh, this movie should have been better." And we're talking
2: about how good you know the quality of the movie is. That's all well and good, but there's nothing wrong with a movie that just you have fun with. I just don't have as much fun with this one.
1: You know, that's why I, I guess I do have fun with it. So I think I probably had more fun with it than you did. But perhaps not as much as I thought I did, you know, a week ago um, when I really kind of take a step back and think, well, you know, I did enjoy it. it. It's a film that I will probably revisit again, but how soon will I revisit it? You know, and that's the thing. It's like I've seen this movie a few times over the years. If I'm in the mood for a Hammer film, it's not going to be the one, oh, I've got to see The Gorgon. There's others that I'm going to gravitate towards and we'll see. You know, you know, 10 times, 15 times, The Gorgon wouldn't be one of those movies. That said, there's other Hammer films that I can say I'm one and done. You know, it's like, I don't think I'm going to go back and revisit She. You know? Uh,
2: <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> this isn't that bad. It's just not as good as some of the other... And I think it kind of falls middling for me in the Hammer films. It's not at the bottom. It's not at the top. It's kind of there in the middle. It's a good film, but... It's it's not necessarily Hammer's best, not their worst. It's just kind of it kind of exists and I think that there's evidence of something that could have been as I said, better script and and for me I think the special effects probably a bigger impact on me than with you. I think the special effects really failed. And, and so here's a little bit of trivia I have with the special effects.
2: And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but what and we we've spoiled, so what specifically are do you mean like just in general? Her appearance, or do you mean when her head's lopped off and rolls down the
1: stairs? Well, both. The the overall appearance of the snakes, I think, gosh, it could have been so much better. And you think what had existed at that time, technology wise? Well, stop motion. The, the part of, of um, so Barbara Shelley, who plays the character of Carla Hoffman, also plays the part of, of the Gorgon, who is referred to as Megara. And she had suggested to producer Anthony Keyes. She wanted to use a special wig with live green garden snakes woven into it for a more realistic effect. Her idea was rejected. They said, nope, don't have the money, don't have the time to do that. And then when uh, the producers saw the finished product, he ended up apparently going up to Shelley and saying, you know what, I should have listened to you. <laughs> Christopher Lee has said that, quote, the only thing wrong with the Gorgon is the Gorgon. He felt like it's a good film, that ultimately is greatly negated by the Gorgon's appearance in the film to the effect that in another quote he he essentially said that he enjoyed making the movie but the end product was greatly disappointing and it was the special effects for him that that ruined it and he said it pulled so much away from everything else that it made the film forgettable.
2: A lot of times, the the Gorgon is seen in the shadows or behind, you know, so you can't really see. So, is it really just that one shot
1: at the end where she comes out? I mean, mean, you can do things in the shadows, right, without showing, and then and it works. It's when you have the big payoff sequence, and you're like, "That's it." That's kind of how I felt, and and I went back and rewatched, and I thought, well, you know, as I started getting getting overcritical with the film, I was like, "Well, it's really that bad," and I looked, I'm like. Yeah, because I think that, for me, I think they could have done better. Now, I don't know, live garden snakes, I'm not quite sure how that would have (laughs) worked. Sounds great, but I don't know really how that would have worked. That said, stop motion existed at the time. Yeah, it's going to cost a little bit of money, but for that small of a sequence, gosh, you could have had a better payoff, the lobbing off of the head, that sequence. Actually, the, the, the actress... Almost got decapitated herself. Apparently, she initially wasn't ducking quick enough, and, and I think it was the director, or the producer, basically had to pull her out of the way at the last minute. And so then they decided to use the dummy, so so as to not you know make sure that she you know didn't potentially hurt herself again. That unfortunately doesn't doesn't play off as well as it could have either. So I think. If you were to fix that, the, the big reveal, you could still keep the other sequences where you know it was in the shadows, and I think that worked. I think the big reveal is is kind of like you know that happens to a lot of, of, of horror films and monster flicks, is where the monster is cre- kept in the shadows, and then when the big reveal happens, you're like, really? What was it? Uh, the maze, right? Or the frog is is what a prime example where that movie has so much atmosphere, and then. It, it's revealed at the very end and it looks so comical to me, at least as like, it pulls me out of the moment. I love these classic films and I love, and I can be very forgiving, but every once in a while you get that poor special effect and it just pulls you out of the moment. And you're like, I wish they would have spent an extra buck or two on the special effects. And that's kind of uh, when I really started analyzing the Gorgon, that's what it kind of came back to for me.
2: Let's talk about Lee and Cushing some more because they both play a little bit against character. I mean, He's not really the bad guy, but Cushing is sort of not the good guy either. I mean, he knows what's going on, but will refuse to admit it. And then at the end, he goes full out cray cray. So that's. But he he looks really healthy. He he's got the mutton chops, and he looks his face is fuller. We're so used to I am how he looked later in his career in Star Wars, so drawn and gone. He looks just really healthy and robust here.
1: I think I think the the look that he had in the 1960s. If you think of most of the films. In the '60s, once he starts making films for Hammer, he's making more money, so he can eat a little bit better. He's not the starving actor anymore. Then, of course, the '60s was the time period prior to his wife getting sick and passing away. That's when he looks the best in the 1960s. That was his decade. After you know his wife passed, you know he spent the rest of his wife of his uh, life alone. And he did get very, very thin as he got older. And, and uh, then, of course, you know, as, as he wasn't in the best of health, he does have that kind of gaunt appearance. I agree. He looked great in this movie. And Lee, he,
2: I, I love his look, too. He's gray with that big old fluffy mustache. A few episodes ago or, or whenever we did the Who Would Win Lee or uh, Cushing in each particular movie, I think this would be Lee's movie. He has oh, yeah. the, the showier part. He's having a good time. You can tell he's really good in it. Cushing's more sort of restrained, but but Lee uh, is great. And like I said, he's not. He has one brief appearance at the beginning, but then doesn't show up till fifty-one minutes in. We could have used more of him in this. He, I thought he was great in it.
1: Yep, I agree. You know, talking about the cast, besides Lee and, and Cushing, you've got Richard Pasco as uh, Paul Heights. Not a lot of stuff from him. He did lots of TV work, but I found it interesting that he was in Rasputin' the Mad Monk, uh, which, of course, starred Christopher Lee. And then actress Barbara Shelley, who played Carla Hoffman, uh, a.k.a. the Megara, she was also in Rasputin' the Mad Monk. Uh, other films like Dracula, The Prince of Darkness, she was in Village of the Damned. Lots of TV work. Blake's Seven, The Avengers. A lot of people did The Avengers in these three films. And uh, here's a Doctor Who reference for you. She was in the 1980s four-part episode, Planet of Fire, opposite the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison. Michael Goodlife played Professor Jules Heitz. Uh, Not a lot of films for him, but he he was uh, in a few, like an interesting selection that I, I picked here. Peeping Tom... Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and The Man with the Golden Gun. <laughs> how's that for a trilogy? Yeah, with Christopher Lee. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Then, of course, big Doctor Who Reps. I
2: was waiting for this one.
1: Patrick Troughton yep. as Inspector... Uh, how's it pronounced? Kenoff, I think.
2: Yeah, I'm not Kenoff.
1: sure. The Inspector. Patrick Troughton, this was 64, so this was about two years before he became the Doctor. Um, he took over the role in 1966. He has parts in several different Hammer films, but his part was, was fairly significant in this one, and I thought he did a really good job. You know, And, of course, two years later, when he took on the role of the second Doctor in Doctor Who, that kind of uh, set his career on, on a, an interesting course for really the rest of his life. I mean, he was associated with the, the Doctor right up until his death, which I believe was 1985, if I'm correct in that, I mean, he, as we mentioned before, he passed away at a Doctor Who convention, I believe, in Chicago. He, had, he was there and passed away in his sleep uh, overnight from Saturday to Sunday morning. Uh, I can't imagine being at a convention where you'd just seen him the day before, and then they announced that he passed away in his sleep. Uh, nonetheless, I, I thought he was really good in this film. And then we talked about uh, John Gilling, the writer. It was supposedly based on a story by J. Llewellyn Devine, And it was actually uh, novelized by John Burke in 1966 as part of the Hammer film Omnibus. It was also adapted into a 10-page comic strip in 1977's House of Hammer magazine. We'll mention it. I don't think we really need to do much, though. The director was Terrence Fisher, who, my gosh, he directed everything that Hammer did, essentially. Uh, Frankenstein Created Woman, Dracula, Prince of Darkness The Mummy, Hound of the Baskervilles and many, many, many more He is one of the most prolific horror directors I think really uh, of the time I think when you look at how many films he, he cranked out James Bernard did the music I, mean, I like the music a lot Yeah, classic Hammer music You know, Lots of Dracula and Frankenstein Hammer films X the Unknown, Kiss the Vampire Did the music for She, as bad as that movie is uh, he also did the music for *Torture Garden*, which we've talked about before. The interesting uh, *Amicus* anthology. We talked about the makeup. I mean, Roy Ashton did the makeup work. Not his best work, but again, you do what you can with a limited budget. And I'm um, looking. I think that's it. Yeah, it's, that's the, my little trivia on, on the Gorgon. I, you know, it, it came at a time of classic Hammer, you know, film production, um, and it gets a lot of love because it's got cushing and lee in it uh and it's again you got a great cast great writer great director ultimately it it seemed like it had almost the the perfect recipe for success it was just lacking a few ingredients
2: we might have a point of clarification barbara shelley did not actually play the gorgon the creature that was a woman named prudence hyman
1: oh in my note here when I think I might have got this from IMDB go figure perhaps maybe the, the intent was their note was that she had wanted to play the part of the Gorgon and ultimately did not in any case no I,
2: I had that wrong what did you think about not regardless of the snakes just the face makeup of the Gorgon I thought that was pretty good
1: I thought that was good yeah I didn't have a problem with that, that yeah. I thought that was believable
2: well I guess I don't have anything else to say about it either it's readily available if you wish to watch it. Oh, I do have just a quick story about that. So this was a movie that was not available for a while, and I actually bought a bootleg of it. I can't remember where I ordered it from online, and this is how it goes. I could swear it was only a few days later they announced that this set was coming out with the Easy Gordon. The way it works. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah.
1: It was released in 2008 as part of the Icons of Horror Hammer Film Collection, which I believe is out of print now, but you can find relatively cheap it's a good set if you don't want to buy it as part of the the double feature it's available now on blu-ray from Mill Creek it's paired up with the two faces of Dr. Jekyll and I think you can get that for probably about 15 bucks I think it it, I know that's still in print and you for the same price you can get it on DVD if you shop around enough I don't think that the DVD is asking I don't think they're asking crazy prices on that one that was pretty widely uh, available and in print for a while and uh, I don't believe it's in print now, though. But this is an easy one to find. It, it, you won't have to, to, to dig too far to, to find it. Unlike a lot of other Hammer films, which are a bit more difficult, uh, The Gorgon is pretty, pretty much readily available.
2: Let's take a break, then. And we'll come back and talk about our second movie in just a moment.
0: Everyone knows there are two sides to the infamous Dr. Jekyll. By day, the man... By night, the monster. Put a woman in your life, a good woman, and
3: one day you'll wake up and you'll see a changed man.
0: Now, Hammer believe you too are ready for a change, an absolutely complete change.
3: This is the testament of Dr. Henry Jekyll. Male. 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 It's Hyde, isn't it? How is your brother? He hasn't been himself for late.
0: This is the new Dr. Jekyll, the most evil woman you'll ever see. (sighs) This is the sensuous Sister Hyde the most evil man you'll ever meet.
3: Stay away from her. She means you great harm. Why? I just feel it, that's all.
0: Dr. Jekyll, Sister Hyde, man or woman or both. In this film, you will actually see the sinister Dr. Jekyll change in mind and body into the totally evil Sister Hyde.
3: It is I who exist, Dr. Jekyll. Not
0: you.
2: It is I who will be rid of you.
3: Rid of you! Rid of you! Rid of you.
0: Hammer invites you to share the agony of a man whose body is possessed by a strange passion to
3: murder and beyond. They must be female, no more than 20 years old. There will be a different kind of victory tonight. And then the tug of war will be ended between us. Fascinating situation, don't you think? It'll be interesting to see who wins.
1: The sexual transformation of a man into a woman will actually take place before your very eyes. Parents, be sure your children are sufficiently mature to witness the details of this frank and revealing film. In Victorian London, Dr. Henry Jekyll experiments to create an elixir of life that will grant him eternal life. While testing his serum with an ordinary male housefly, he discovers that the female hormone he uses has inadvertently changed its gender. It's not long before he guzzles the serum himself and transforms into the lovely Sister Hyde, who masquerades as Jekyll's visiting sister. The upstairs neighbors, Susan Spencer and her brother Howard, become romantically involved with the alter egos and become trapped in a web of murder and deceit.
2: We are back and we're jumping six years into the future. This as we talked about earlier, was after the the shift that Hammer made. They have moved from Bray Studios to Elstree. They had started making movies like Frankenstein Created Woman in 67, The Devil Rides Out in 68, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave in 68, and Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed in 69. They had taken those properties that were so big in the classic age of Hammer Horror and put them in sequels and more... Uh, adult scenarios, I guess. Uh, all of those movies are just... They're they are the different Hammer, a new and different Hammer than what we were used to. And this takes us into the 70s where it gets really different. It, you talked about how times change. And so I feel like with the Gordon Gorgon, maybe it wasn't changing quite, quite with the times. Well, they made up for lost time and they made <laughs> a huge jump in the 70s with Hammer. And these movies we're going to talk about are just... About as far as you can get uh, from those original classics. But I, I think they're great. And I su- I've said this before and I surprise myself every time. If I'm just watching a bunch of Hammer films, I'm naturally drawn to those later ones. And it seems like those are the ones that, you know, people don't like as much as the classics. But I, I, enjoy, I enjoy all of these 70s Hammer movies. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde from 71, and then when we talk about Dracula, '80, 1972, those are a couple of my favorites. I get a vibe, Rich, that you did not care for Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, at least as much as I did, so what did you think of it? Tell us what you really think.
1: This was a first time viewing for me. This was a movie that I I don't recall ever being on television, don't recall ever seeing. When it came out on VHS, I didn't see it a few years back when i was trying to start you know filling in some of my hammer gaps the dvd had already gone out of print and was was going for for you know kind of kind of pricey so i found a cheap vhs and so what i watched was actually a, a dub from the vhs so i'll acknowledge i didn't see the the probably the best picture quality but actually it was pretty good and you know, the movie, I think that's the first thing that struck me right from the start was the music. David Whitaker, his style of music, very un... It just didn't sound like Hammer to me. It kind of threw me. I mean, it sounded very... Kind of like if, if, a, if a big studio was to make an adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde... It sounded like the music that, that some some big Hollywood studio would have used in the 1970s, you know, or if they would have made like a Sherlock Holmes film, you know, they would have used this music that was just very commonly used back in the day. David Whitaker did the music and I've been, I'm searching here and, you know, I, he, he doesn't have a, a long list of, of things musically that he did that really are standing out to me. Probably... You know, the, the reason why this music just immediately threw me out of the moment. I knew that, you know, we were dealing with the Dr. Jekyll story. And obviously there was going to have to be even for, you know, Carla's brain exploded on this one, her scientific brain. But in mind kind of like, oh, boy, we're really stretching it a little bit going from man to woman. But OK, you know, I went with the, the idea. But they really tried to cram a lot into this film. That's what's so clever about it. I love
2: that. You're talking about like Burke and Hare well, Jack you got, the Ripper. Right. Yeah, you
1: got. Okay, so Dr. Jekyll is actually Jack the Ripper and he works with Burke and Hare. I don't know. I mean, it's like I I for me I was like, okay, you know, we're, we're we're tying all this in from the same time period. That's kind of cool. But did it really add anything to the plot? The presence of Burke and Hare Added nothing to the plot because it, it's it's a part of the story early on, and then they do away with with the characters. I mean, Burke and Hare. If you were to take Burke and Hare out of the film, you could have replaced them with I don't know, Mutton Jeffs.
2: Uh, I respectfully disagree because they're yeah they go out of the film, but the way they go out. So you know a mob attracts, and and this is I. I don't know. I love. I love everything about this. It was so subtle. They're, you know, they're walking down the street and there's this mob breaking into this building, and you wonder what in the world's happening. Well, it's where Burke and Hare are, and it's the mob has discovered that they're grave robbers, and they're going to make them pay. So I think that tells uh, about the people of that time, and then that ties later on. What are they going to do when they find out? Dr. Jekyll's Jack the Ripper. They're going to do the same type of thing, mob mentality. But they take Burke and Hare and they, I guess they hang one of them and then throw the other one in a lime pit. And it's just so cool because they mention the one of them is in a lime pit and they show just a brief moment yeah. of him in the lime pit screaming. I just thought that was a, a cool extra touch. I, I think if, if they had been in there and then just disappeared and you didn't know what happened to him, I would go with your argument. But I think it's an added... Bonus feature that that they take that little mini story and let it play out in this. See, I felt like they
1: shoehorned a in just for for name recognition. I think you could you could have characters like Burke and Hare there, not call them Birkenhair, and, and it would have worked the same. So trying to, to to squeeze in a historical character to me, it was just like okay, you know, we're trying to you know, make our story even that much more important because we're going to pull in Brooklyn here. I don't know. I just for some reason, I, I, I understand what you're saying. It didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, the, the idea that Dr. Jekyll was Jack the Ripper. Okay. Cool idea. It hadn't really been done. I don't think in any other film adaptations of, of Jekyll and Hyde, at least that I'm familiar with. I mean, it ties in with the story. It ties in with his experiments. I would have rather they not said that he was Jack the Ripper.
2: Technically, they never did. I mean, he was well, the Whitechapel murderer. We know it's Jack the Ripper. Right,
1: they, they don't call him Jack the Ripper. They say Whitechapel. I would have preferred if, if they would have gone about it a different way. I think that, for me, I, I know what they were trying to do and trying to just, again, make the story seem more expansive than it was. I would have appreciated if they would have done something a little different. Yeah.
2: And to me, that it's like a high-profile... Thing that's going on again with with the public, it, it speaks to their state of mind, it sets up a wonderful uh, and, and I guess they could have done this in another way too but because police are investigating the murders you know, they eventually come to where they watch Dr. Jekyll at his home and he realizes it so he can't go out but he says, oh they'll never think anything of a woman going out so when he changes to Sister Hyde, he can go out and still commit his murders. I, I think that all goes together at, to add to the story. Yeah, it didn't have to be Jack the Ripper or Whitechapel murders, but I'm trying to think in the original, any of the other Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde stories, there weren't really a series of murders,
1: right? No. He was a straightforward scientist. He wasn't having to commit the murders to, I, to get what he needs
2: and I know Hyde mistreated the, the call girl or or whatever, and that was the, the source of the drama, but I think adding the murders, I, I liked it.
1: They they obviously wanted to, to take a... Because, you know, Hammer didn't do a straightforward Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde adaptation, so this was their take on it. With a twist, the question is, why did they do the twist in 1971? Let's be honest, they did it because that was the time period that they were incorporating more sex and nudity into their films. And so if you throw in the the beautiful Martine Beswick as Mrs. Hyde, that's the way to take a classic story with a modern twist and throw in a little sex and nudity in for good measure, which is what Hammer was doing at that point. So that's really why I think that they they did this movie, because it, it centers on the the sexuality of, of Mrs. Hyde and Martine Beswick. I think if they would have done, in 71, if they would have done a straightforward Jekyll and Hyde adaptation, it wouldn't have worked because that's not what, what was working in films at that point. Think about what Jack Palance did, a Jekyll and Hyde version, but it was, what, 68, I think, on television in, in the United States. This particular time period, ham, horror in general was changing a lot, and fans were wanting they were wanting more blood, more guts, more sex, more nudity. And it was, by the time you get to 74, it was like, okay, no, we don't want the old gothic horror anymore. We want, you know, we want this and a different style for this new generation. And so Hammer was changing their style of films at this point. All of their movies were really kind of being sexed up a little bit. And that's, that was the intent of including Martine Beswick in the cast yeah. was to sex it up.
2: And you say a little bit, and I want to stress... Granted, this is 2019. It doesn't. It seems pretty tame. In '71, maybe it was worse, but it's not that bad. All the salacious taglines that you read, and, and no, it, they, it's surprisingly much more of a standard story than you would think. By the way, they well, it out. is.
1: You think this is '71? This is at the start of that cycle. Think about the films that would come out over the next two, three, oh, four yeah, years. Yeah. With each film, is like okay, let's do this and this and this and this. Seventy-one, they were still kind of incorporating that. You know, how what can we get away with in, in a film? I thought it was interesting that uh, Caroline Monroe was supposed to play Mrs. Hyde. She rejected the part because the request was for full frontal nudity, and she didn't want to do nudity at that point. I'm not even sure if she ever did nudity in any of her films. Very, very sexy and and a lot of, you know, skimpy clothing and and bikinis and whatnot. But I'm not sure that she's actually ever done nudity in any films, at least that I'm aware of. Maybe the listeners can correct me if I'm Mm -hmm. wrong. Interesting, if if she would have taken on this film at this point, because at this point she was still kind of doing some bit parts. If she had taken on a co-starring role in a Hammer film in 71, where would her career have taken taken her would she have accepted the part in the abominable dr Fibes for a non-credited non-speaking role as the the dead wife of of dr Fibes? i don't know probably not if she had been a lead actress in a hammer film in 71 by turning it down she didn't make that that leap yet and so it turns out to be martine beswick of course she had a lot of films i mean i, I you know she was in several bond films from Russia with Love, Thunderball. She was in A Bullet for a General, um, Night Gallery. She has a Star Trek connection, loosely, believe it or not. I did not know that she was in Strange New World, which was a 1975 pilot movie. Gene Roddenberry had come up with this idea to do a story set in the future, of kind of like a post-apocalyptic Earth. And it was made... They, they tried it three different times. I think the first one was... Oh, was it Project Genesis or something with with Alex Cord? That didn't work. So then they basically took the same idea. I think they even used some of the same sets and did Planet Earth that had John Saxon, which I love that movie, but it definitely plays very, very made for television and the they have mutants at the beginning that actually have ridges on their foreheads that look like Klingons. Uh, it's kind of funny. And then that didn't work, and so then they did Strange New World, which by that point, I don't even believe that Gene Roddenberry gets any credit for the story, but John Saxon comes back again. And there was actually quite a few tweaks to the third version, and it still wasn't accepted. But she was actually in that, playing a character, was it Tama or Tana? Um, She was also in Six Million Dollar Man, and of course she's going to be in House of the Gorgon. She was willing... To do frontal nudity, but not full frontal, and that became a point of contention between her and uh, director Roy Ward Baker, who wanted full nudity, and she she was adamant that that wasn't going to happen. Now I got to think, is like I thought that she did full frontal in this, but I guess maybe it was implied. I know that there was there was frontal nudity, but um, I guess they wanted more of her than actually actually was seen. I don't believe that she's ever been opposed to to doing nudity as long as it makes sense. And she didn't feel like full nudity made sense. And I I don't think it was needed. I think it was, okay, that's the director wanting to push the envelope and see how much we can get. Would it have enhanced the story? No. Yeah. Um, I, I think the nudity that there is does
2: enhance the story. I mean, you're talking about someone that changes from male to female.
1: I, I, I agree. I think if you didn't, I think it, you know, it would almost be kind of a cheat, right? Then like, how
2: can you not have that scene where... Her hands are caressing her breasts. And then one of the hands is a man's hand.
1: I can, I can tell you when that scene came up, I was just sitting there. I'm like, I was going to say, in cue Carla's expression in three, two, one. <laughs> and she looked at me and was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I think probably most women say the same thing. I, but, you know, I will say Martine Beswick d- does a great job in the film. I, I really do love her as, as Mrs. Hyde to Ralph Bates, Dr. Jekyll. You know, she 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 plays the part very, very well. I think actually she's better in her role than Ralph Bates. I've never been a huge Ralph Bates fan. Hammer really kind of wanted to make him the next big thing. He was in Taste the Blood of Dracula. And then it's like, okay, well we're gonna we're gonna do away with Peter Cushing and we're gonna put you in the next Frankenstein film, Horror of Frankenstein, which I still have not seen to this day. Did Less for a Vampire and then that was it for Ralph Bates. The, the experiment failed, and he kind of disappeared into obscurity. He did lots of television work, but... He's kind of a cold actor, he's... Well, and that's that's a point I had with the... Probably one of the biggest problems I had with this film was the characters. There's really not any likable characters in this movie.
2: <laughs> yeah, Susan's too dumb to be well, gullible to be yeah, likable. I
1: mean, <laughs> Su- Susan was just, like, so desperate. Susan Spencer, it's like... Oh, I, I want Doctor Jekyll at all costs, and I don't care. I mean, I'm going to make you food, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, woman!" You know, just cool it off a little bit. She was an airhead, and she just was so wanton for for love and affection and attention and sex, and it just I was like, there was I don't know. It turned me off from her character, and her brother Howard is not much better but that whole Spencer family dynamic was really weird. It's like, let's just sit around and read books and knit yarn with mother. And even the slightest mention that we're going to go out in the real world. And mother's like, Oh, you don't need to do that. And I don't know this. None of them were likable. I don't think, um, professor Robertson, Dr. Jekyll's friend.
2: Right. And who, I mean, I, who is that actor? Cause he's terrific in this. I really, really like. He him. was
1: good. I did like Gerald Sim. He, he was really good in the part. But again, he's not really likable either. He he's kind of a legend. Yeah. <laughs> who are we supposed to be cheering for? I, there's there's not a hero, or heroine in this film. I mean, Doctor Jekyll, I don't feel sorry for him because he he's kind of like the the typical Doctor Jekyll character. He creates this mess, you know. Although this version is a little different. He's he's wanting to to create this experiment but then he needs he realizes what he's he's doing the thing is like he's coming up with the cures for all these diseases but he needs to live longer he's looking for the elixir of life and ends up finding that it's you know going to change him into a woman and he's not really redeemable either and i think that's one of my biggest problems with the movie is like who am i supposed to be cheering for none of these people are likable some of them are just downright kind of sad and irritating like uh Susan Spencer, I'm talking about you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and that's what kind of throws me off of the movie. I, I just, I wanted to like it because I thought, okay, this is, you know, I'm really, this is a, a kind of a classic Hammer film. Even though it's 71, this is one that gets talked about a lot and you see images of it a lot. I hadn't seen this yet, even though I had it in my collection for years. And then ultimately I came out of it like, I didn't hate it. But, you know, of the three films that we're covering, it's my least favorite. Hmm.
2: I like Ralph Bates in this. He's very good for the role. He looks like... He and Martine look like they could be brother and sister. Yeah. Ralph, they... I'm sure I'm reading more into this, but it seems like the attention to detail, it's either coincidental or it was purposeful. But he's... In this movie, he's sort of feminine. I mean, definitely the way he does his hair. But I was looking and, like, even his eyelashes looked kind of long. I mean, it just seems as believable as it can be that it happens i absolutely adore the different camera tricks they use during transformations Uh, i loved you know he's hunched over in a chair and the the camera shooting over his shoulder and you don't see any cuts or anything but he sits up and looks in the mirror and you see martine looking in the mirror i I would agree they do a lot of like i mentioned the male hand there's a lot of of mixing and matching of male and female body parts during transition And, and really the with everything else going on, the real theme of the movie is that they're battling for dominance.
1: Yeah, which so, is a classic Jekyll-Hyde thing, because, I mean, Hyde is always kind of battling for, for dominance. Sure.
2: I, I feel like there are a lot of quick times when they change back and forth, and you see these this like mixture. But they do a lot with glass, like a distorted glass. You kind of see them... I don't know. They did it like without special effects, just with camera work. And I thought it was really, think, really effective. I loved that.
1: That was effective. I, I would say that was, uh, you know, and, and you got to give, I think, it up to the the director, Roy Ward, Roy Ward Baker, I think, did a really good job with this film, despite the fact that, you know, there are, for me personally, there are things I don't like about it. Uh, I think the, the film is very well made.
2: And it's got a lot of short Short scenes; they it just clicks along. I mean, and I'm going to say the same thing about Dracula when we talk about it. It's it's this new style where it's a lot of short scenes and a lot of scenes that are intercut,
1: and it just it speeds along at, the movie at a pace. A little, yeah, the movie does move along at a quick pace. It doesn't really drag like we had in the Gorgon. There was certainly um, slow moving at the beginning part of that film, certainly. And I like. I think the screenplay is fantastic.
2: I mean, uh, Brian Clemens who. You, you probably have more of his resume or, or whatever, but he, he goes back, you know, come my writing for the Avengers and, and a lot of British TV and movies. He has 108 writing credits. He only directed one movie, and that was Captain Crono's Vampire Hunter, which he also wrote. Yeah. I think this movie reflects a lot of his sensibility. And I can just imagine Hammer saying, OK, we want to make Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but we want a twist to it, you know, and. I think he took it and ran with it and came up with a very clever screenplay.
1: I think this is a case where sometimes when you get a writer who does a lot of television work, they don't transition well to writing for the big screen because they're used to a quicker pace. They're used to filling in 50 minutes of television time. And now, of course, you you have an hour and a half or whatever. And oftentimes, what do they do? They pad. He doesn't do that here. And I think... And considering, as you said, he did lots of TV work—thirty-two episodes of The Avengers, seventeen episodes of the New Avengers—so um, he very prolific. And The Avengers sometimes, you know, was a was a series that sometimes moved the episodes moved swiftly. Sometimes they they were a much slower pace. And so I think here he he takes the story, moves it along at just the right pace with minimal padding. I still think. The addition of Burke and Hare and the, the tie into Jack the Ripper was a little bit of padding, but not necessarily. I mean I think it was more so the use of those characters or the implication of those characters as opposed to I think if you would have named them anything else, then I think I would have been much happier with it. It just for some reason it just sticks out to me. But I did like the I did like the script and I did like the direction of the film plus it's it's
2: so entertaining and there are two specific scenes that are truly suspenseful the first one is they they make a big deal of sort of forecasting how foggy it is and they talking about how the fog is like pea soup well then susan our supposed heroine is out walking the streets she's looking for jekyll because he stood her up for a date and uh, Dumb move, by the way. Why would you go out and get lost in the fog? <laughs> anyway, uh, she lives yeah, in a constant fog. Yeah. But anyway, and so Sister Hyde is following her. And, you know, it's just a lot of, again, those quick shots. Sister Hyde pulls the knife out of her garter. And, you know, is she going to find Susan? That's very suspenseful. And then the ending is just, uh, in one respect, it reminds me of Horror of Dracula. Because it's a a action-packed ending. You know, Jekyll's trying to escape he's on the roof he slides down the roof he hangs onto the gutter he he steps on the ledge below the ledge breaks away i mean it's suspenseful you're sitting there even though you're not cheering for him you're
1: like oh my gosh he's gonna fall you know Yeah. You know, i mean you bring up some very good points and i think that I, I i can't disagree with you on that for me those are are the the high points of the film obviously i do think that yeah, I just, my big stumbling block is, is you know, some of the things I've mentioned previously. I think the, the lack of characters that I'm cheering for. Because at the point, it's like when, you know, as you are talking about Jekyll, you know, that, that is a very good suspenseful scene. But I'm kind of like, well, who am I cheering for in this yeah. scene? Because I'm not cheering for him. I don't want him to get away because he's not a good guy. You know, am I cheering for Susan? No. I mean, you know, am I? You know, who am I cheering for? You know, I don't. I don't know. Well,
2: I don't know. I think you could make an argument that you are
1: cheering for Jekyll. If you think well, of
2: the other Doctor Jekyll, and his, he's the hero of the other movies. I mean, not an extent, anti-hero. Yeah. He's you want him to live. I mean, he's the human that has created a monster. I mean, he's sort
1: of like Doctor Frankenstein in a way. Yeah, but I mean, Jekyll does some things in the movie though that I don't know. So he makes some choices that kind of just deter from me. Like, yeah, I guess a, he is a, a cold-blooded murderer. He's yeah, <laughs> like I got say, he's a cold-blooded murderer. So you know, it's like uh, you know, I, it's like I want to cheer for him because out of all the characters, he is probably has the potential to be the most likable. I just don't think the Spencer family has that potential, and of course, you know, Missus Hyde is just she's just pure evil, you know, despite the fact that she's gorgeous, you know, yeah, there's, there's definitely some (laughs) evil tendencies there. So you can't cheer for her. He's probably the closest thing to to being the hero of the piece, but he's not really because of what he does. And that's where I, I stumble. It's like, I don't know who I'm supposed to cheer for in this movie. I don't hate the movie. I was just probably disappointed with it because it had been, I'd never seen this one. I went into it with a little bit of hype. Because it was, you know, I was looking forward to seeing Martine and and finally see this movie that I've been aware of for so many years, and I think ultimately I was disappointed with the with what I with what I got.
2: Uh, do you have anything else on it? I want to close talking about it with a, a personal story about it.
1: That that is all. I don't have a lot of extra trivia on this one. Other than the things I've already mentioned. So other than the fact that uh, it is harder to find on home media. Um, this is only been released on DVD and it it is out of print and it is pricey. I think it's going for like 50 bucks. Don't pay 50 bucks for this movie, folks. It's going to be out eventually. Somebody's going to release it, whether it's, you know, going to be Mill Creek or whether it's going to be shout factory. They've been releasing a lot of the others. Eventually this will get a blu-ray release. So just, I would say be patient or just be, you know, be patient and wait for the, for the blu-ray release or, Be patient as you're digging for used copies. Eventually, you'll be able to find one cheaper than than $50. You know
2: what? I'd pay $50 for it. I've got the Anchor Bay DVD, and it's fantastic. It's got a commentary with several people. I I really wanted to listen to it before we recorded, but didn't have time. But Martin Beswick is one of the commentators. I think it's worth it. I I like it that much. I've told many stories about going to the Enid Drive-In in Enid, Oklahoma as a kid and and seeing some of these horror movies. And I don't know what movie it was, but I would have been eight years old in 71. And they showed the trailer for Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And I, anything horror, I wanted to go. You know, like, will you take me to see that? Will you take me to see that? My father, and I wonder if he read these taglines because he... He had a, sat me down and had a serious talk with me and he said, you know, why do you want to see that movie? He goes, "You know there are operations that can turn men into women. Do you really want to see that?" Well, what does an 8-year-old tell his father? <laughs> "No, I don't want to see that." I didn't watch this movie for years because of that. I you know, I'm not I'm not the kind of person I'm too wishy-washy that wants to rebel and the first chance I get, I watch it just to spite him. But, you know, that stuck with me for years. And I'm like, no, I don't think I want to see that. When I finally watched it, it was the stigma that was on it all those years. You know, it, it's nothing like that. It's not no, as no, it's not. as horrible as that. And so I think that may be one reason why I, I loved it so much. And I every time I watch it, it's better and better. I I like it.
1: As I said, I don't hate it. I think I just went in with a little too much hype and ultimately I was a little let down by it. You know, it would be something I would revisit. Uh, I'll watch it again at some point in the future. And as with all films, you know, I give it 10 years and I might look at it a little bit differently than than I did. Um, I, think that, I think every film is like that. Something you may have enjoyed 10 years ago you might not enjoy as much now and vice versa. So um, it's something that I wouldn't mind revisiting at some point.
2: Yeah, and I hope you do. I hope you find more out of it, because I really, I kind of adore this film. We will take one more break, hear one more trailer, and come back to talk about Dracula, A.D. 1972.
3: Yesterday, Dracula was the most fearsome being the screen has ever seen. Today, tonight, you. you, you, you could be Dracula's next victim. Something new, yet as old as time. Come on, Johnny. A date with the devil? Are you ready? He's ready. He's waiting to freak you out. Right out of this world. Died September the 18th, 1872. A hundred years ago to the day. You who witness it must swear before the name of the devil to keep it secret. Who knows about vampires, for God's sake? My grandfather died fighting a vampire. The most terrible, most dangerous vampire of all time. The year is 1972. A leap year in horror. A vintage year for vampires. masters of horror to meet again in the 20th century.
0: It has over. I don't think it is. I have returned to destroy you.
1: The Count is back, with an eye for London's hot pants and a taste for everything. After a rip-roaring 1872 introduction in which Lawrence Van Helsing and Count Dracula battle on top of a speeding carriage, the time jumps 100 years later to 1972 where Van Helsing's ancestor, Lorimer, now struggles to save his granddaughter Jessica from becoming the bride of the resurrected vampire. The 70s is a groovy era, man, but with young Johnny Alucard demanding an audience with his satanic majesty, it's also a deadly era. Past and present collide inside a dilapidated church that connects the two timelines.
2: We're back to talk about our last movie, Dracula A.D. 1972. We've talked with the other two films about Hammer going through its transition and kind of evolving or or changing to try to accommodate the times. Here is a film that literally spans the classic era and the modern era, doing what it does. I feel like this movie has gotten a lot of love recently. It, It seems like when I first started really getting into Hammer, this was sort of a one that people didn't really like and these days I don't really find people that don't like this movie it
1: is a lot of fun I think that um, even more so recently you know maybe in the last you know 10 15 years there's this resurgence of love for for horror films of the 1970s and more acceptance of that you know funky style of music and uh, you you got to think about, you know, the music of the, you know, this early 70s funky music almost has a disco vibe to it at times. By the 1980s, anything disco related, anything with disco or anything type of funky music was just abhorred by people. And so I think that if you look at that time period, of the 80s and 90s, there really wasn't that resurgence of popularity in the music. And music plays such a big, big part in this film you know, much like with the Gorgon, I think you can love the Gorgon, but the special effects may pull you out of the moment for some people, as it did with me. With Dracula AD 1972, if you're not into funky music, it's going to bother you. And that you know, Carla did not like the music. She loved the movie, and she said, Man, I wish they'd have done something different with the music. And I said, You know, I actually like the music, but I could understand. If you're not into the music, it's going to bother you. It's going to pull you out of the moment. I think that's why there was a time period where people just didn't get into it whereas now i think you know there's just more love for that 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 time period you know and that that kind of that funky black exploitation type music and maybe you know quentin tarantino played a part in that when he really started to embrace that that era of filmmaking and a lot of the types of films that he's making uh, and continues to make i think people look back at that grindhouse era with with uh, you know Joe Bob talks about that on uh, the last drive-in, uh, you know he he talks about that Times Square dirty gritty grindhouse era, you know that is for for a lot of uh, you know film fans uh, that's that's a an era where some really weird and, and gritty films were made and people look a lot more fondly back at that time period. Dracula is not quite a grindhouse film, but. You know, it's the start of that, you know, change of of film style and stuff. And I think that's why more people, you know, love it now than did, you know, 10, 15 years ago.
2: Well, and also, I think the further we get away from when it was actually made, it gets better. And I remember reading, I don't think it was a big hit at the time, or maybe it was, but...
1: It was enough that, I mean, they did the sequel. yeah, Yeah,
2: yeah. But I remember reading that... At that time, it was like a bunch of old men writing what they thought kids were like and what they were doing, and that it wasn't authentic. Now we're so distanced from that. That's probably, in our mind, that's exactly what it was like. So I think that's what I mean by time. The distance of time, I think, makes us look more fondly on it. And, you know, who knows? Maybe that's what kids were like
1: back
3: then. I think they tried
1: to, you know, like with the music... They they tried to to imagine that that's teenagers were going to listen to. I'm not sure that anybody ever really listened to Stoneground. I've got a lot of interesting trivia on them, but you know they just weren't a popular band. And the incorporation of the the kind of the supernatural, you know, and the occult elements, which we would get so much of in the 1970s, that too was based on real events, but. I'm kind of interested, I I wish when they did the marketing, I, I am surprised that they wouldn't have maybe tried to tie in a little bit more to the fact that, I don't know, partially based on real events of the day or something like that. I think you could have tied into, because it really does, it was heavily inspired by some events that took place just a few years earlier. I think that that was a missed opportunity from the marketing department that they could have tapped into. And I think if they would have done that, the movie might not have kind of slipped into the obscurity that it, it existed in for a while because I think anything that's based on real events or, or, or whatever, it, it automatically moves it up a notch in a lot of people's categories. Like, well, as, as goofy as this movie is, you know, it's partially based on real events. Kind of like Legend of Boggy Creek, right? That movie's not a great movie, but because it has that gritty, almost real feel and couldn't really be based on some real events, that elevates its its legendary status. You know, you peel back that layer and no, the movie's not that great. I think Dracula A.D., I mean, had the opportunity to kind of elevate to the next level and, and I think because it didn't, it slipped into obscurity for a while because that style of music just wasn't popular. There was no nostalgia for 70s but now we have it and now that that nostalgia is there now all of a sudden people are like yeah this movie's actually better than i remember it because we look back fondly more fondly now at that era than we did say in the 80s or 90s
2: and i feel like also i had read that Hammer had kind of milked the dracula franchise as much as they could and they wanted some way to refresh it yeah. so what better way than to bring him and a lot of people don't like it for that simple fact that dracula doesn't belong in modern times he you know is
1: um well i would agree i mean dracula is it works best when he's in gothic settings but he can work in modern times and i think now i mean how many dracula films have been made in the last you know 20 30 years where dracula has moved into a more contemporary setting you know, there, there's been a lot of films where, where Dracula has been propelled forward or, and even television shows where he's been propelled forward. And they work, you know, to to one degree or another. But this was probably the first time... Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking there's a, probably some Dracula films in the 50s, the B films that were made that were kind of set in, like, in, in modern times, but they didn't fare very well. Because again, I'd, you know, most people think... Vampires, They think Dracula. They think gothic setting, and that's where Dracula works best.
2: They brought in writer Don Houghton to do the screenplay. He also will do the Satanic Rites of Dracula a year later. And then Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires in 74, which are all kind of new twists on other tales. And I think, uh, again, like Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, I think it's clever. I I like how they sort of mash up. And I'm going to steal your thunder here. And,
1: and tell you that Don Houghton was a writer from Doctor Who. He actually wrote uh, <clears throat> two of the best stories from that era. Um, this is John Pertwee, third doctor. And the, the stories he wrote, Inferno, was the seven-part story that came at the end of Pertwee's first season. And then he did a six-part story called The Mind of Evil, which was the second story of the next season. Um, Inferno is a unique story. Uh, This is at a time period where the Doctor couldn't travel, he had lost his memory of time travel, he was exiled to Earth, and the TARDIS kind of became a prop, It sat in the corner and he didn't really travel unless the Time Lords would send him on a mission. Inferno was the first time that entire season that we'd even seen the, the console. We hadn't even been inside the TARDIS, and that was the first time in the entire show's run. And he uses it, he kind of gets it to work momentarily, but he, he sidesteps into an alternate universe that really makes for a fun story. A lot of padding at seven minute, or seven episodes, but it's it's a great story, actually. I think it's one of the better stories from this time period. And then Mind of Evil is a fun story about mind control and Chinese diplomats and, and assassins and very heavy on bringing in... Um, unit which is the united nations intelligence task force and uh, it also features the second appearance of the master and so yeah two really really good stories and if i recall i even think that he wrote and i could be wrong but i think that he he might have written one or both of the the novel adaptations for those stories which was uh kind of a rarity so yeah i i think that he's a great writer, and I think that, that he's he's able to bring Dracula forward in, in a fun way in this story. Uh, I think that it's... Uh, okay, and Dracula dies at the end of every film, and how they bring him back in the next film is always a bit of a stretch. And yeah, it's a bit of a stretch here, but it's a fun way to do it. And so you throw out the logic of the moment. It's like, it, there really is no way that he should come back. But you throw in the whole occult thing... That makes it a bit more believable. Some of the other times where Dracula comes back, it just happens. This one, there's actually some occult and some ceremony and some stuff that, to me, makes this one of the more believable ways the Dracula comes back.
2: I have a question about that. So, like uh, we said in the synopsis that uh, it starts in 1872 and that that's a terrific... That actually is my favorite... Dracula Van Helsing battle out of any of these movies. Oh, it's a
1: great sequence, my guys. I, I, you want to see more of it? Yeah, right? it yeah, like, I want to
2: see the whole movie. How of did that. it
1: start, or whatever? That that was fantastic battle.
2: So my question though is, Christopher Neem, that's him that mm-hmm. collects the ashes and the stake. So that's just got to be an ancestor of Johnny Alucard, right? Because that you know Peter Cushing then is the ancestor of Van Helsing in '72.
1: They don't really... My
2: thought was that somehow, because he's in the occult and everything, that actually was the same person. But then that doesn't make sense because he wouldn't be begging Dracula to bite him so he could have eternal life. So it just has to be an ancestor.
1: I I got that it was an ancestor. They just never really explained that very much. But, yeah, I don't think it would be the same person because then you would have thought that if it was the same person you know, wouldn't he have brought him back sooner? Yeah. Oh, and here's the... Well, oh, uh-oh, I'm finding
2: a, a thread here. So I think they should have had one little brief scene or something to show that he was an ancestor because otherwise, how does he even know where... How does he have the... He's got the ashes, right, in the stake. Yeah. And then he goes and puts them at the
1: church. That's true. So We might be missing something here. What was the connection if there was one... I don't know.
2: Hmm. I think either either way is interesting. I think it'd be very interesting if this was actually somehow the same person, and he does have like. Uh,
1: well, why did he wait so long to do Right. With well. So there's something missing there. It's like maybe it's
2: because he met Jessica Van Helsing and realized. No, I don't know.
1: You would think that he would have met her sooner. So it's like, yeah, there's 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 something missing. If it's the same character, why? now? Why bring Dracula back now? And if it's not the same character, then why have the same actor play the two different characters? What's the connection? Ancestor? Probably. The name that he used, Johnny Alucard, I mean, it clearly... If you don't get that,
2: people, Peter Cushing will draw a little picture with each line going to the letter to show that it is Dracula spelled backwards.
1: Sorry, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, yes. Uh, Yeah, there's something missing there, and if if something was mentioned... Let us know, and we'll call it out next next uh, month's episode. That you know, but I don't know. I don't. I do not remember them mentioning.
2: And you know, a a a hole like that doesn't really bother me because no. it's it's fun to try to figure out. I love the whole ancestors thing and the same actors playing. I mean, that's Dark Shadows right there. You know, oh, yeah. and, uh, different or the same actor playing ancestors of of themselves. Well, I, I love that. Uh,
1: Peter Cushing come back. I mean, it, it had been. 12 years since he had played and played the character. I mean, he played it in Horror of Dracula, and then he came back in Brides of Dracula in 1960 without Christopher Lee. So this was the first time in, what, 14 years that they had played these characters together, and it was the first time in 12 years that Cushing had played the character. A big reunion to bring these two back, and Cushing just doesn't skip a beat, really. I mean, he's playing the same character, yet modernized you know for 1972 and he's looks a little bit more gaunt here because this was it his wife had passed or was gosh I don't remember but it 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 was the time period was his wife had either passed or was sick at this point he was looking a little bit more gaunt Uh, But again, he's older. I mean, he's, you know, um, eight years older than we saw him in in The Gorgon. So, and he was older than Christopher Lee, which is something a lot of people tend to forget that too. Peter Cushing died in 1994 at the age of 81, while Christopher Lee died in 2015 at the age of 93. So there was actually a pretty good age gap between these two. And so Cushing is always going to look older than, than Lee because he was what, almost 20 years older, so...
2: But it's, they don't, like you said, they don't miss a beat. It's very, as action-packed as that very first horror of Dracula movie with with the ending, and uh, again, like uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, the suspense of that ending is amazing, going up into that, up the spiral staircase, and then uh, they, they give each other a beat down, and I'm sure there's probably stunt doubles but you can't really tell and it's just exciting and suspenseful and action-packed and uh, when we talked about horror of dracula on that episode we talked about how it was like an, an action version of the story and this is very similar in that respect i don't think it has any degradation of all at all in those qualities
1: no i would agree i would agree
2: Directed by Alan Gibson, who uh, did a couple movies for Hammer. He also will do Satanic Rites of Dracula a year later. So the same writer, director, team. And
1: and I honestly had not realized how much of a direct sequel it was. I just thought it was, okay, we're still set in modern times. It's been a long time since I've seen Satanic Rites. And um, yeah, I I was surprised that... Uh, inspector murray played by michael coles plays in both films so there really is a connection and of course besides lee and cushing coming back you've also got the character of jessica but she's played by a different actress um here she's played by stephanie beecham whereas in satanic right she's played by joanna lumley Forgot had that. stephanie beecham come back there probably would be a you would really think because I mean, okay, how many times have we seen Lee as Dracula, but it's you know, is there a connection? There's a lot of different right. versions of the storyline. And even this storyline time-wise doesn't tie into the classic, because if you look back at say the original time, original film horror of Dracula, it's set in the 1880s. Where here. Dracula dies in 1872. So, was that, you know, I don't think there was any intention to it. I think it was a lack of continuity probably because, you know, so much time had passed between films. They didn't think anyone would really notice or care. Now, of course, we care about every single little detail, but it does throw off the timeline a little bit. So it's technically... I almost
2: did the math to see, okay, 100 years ago, how old would he have been, Peter Cushing, and now... And in this movie, the 1872 is, is named Lawrence Van Helsing. Is that the original Dr. Helsing? Because I had in my mind that he was himself an ancestor of a Van Helsing. But well, I mean, I the guess, Van Helsing's
1: name has changed so much. What was his character's name in the original? Uh, the IMDb just says Doctor. Doctor was his first name. So, yeah, so, I mean... <laughs> I mean, Abraham had been used in some versions of Van Helsing I don't know though if there's you know you can go back to the original source material and I don't know what his name was in that one honestly because there's been so many Van Helsing versions over the years yeah I, I don't know I mean is it the same character you, I would say let's just say it is and ignore the fact that the Dates may not match up entirely.
2: You know what Avengers Endgame has done for us now? It gives us a whole new perspective to, to try to tie these things together. I mean, what did Cushing Early do in the original Dracula that started an alternative timeline that led us to Dracula in 1972? Yes. I've, I, got, I don't have enough time on my hands,
1: but I would love to map that all out. I'm sure somebody already has on the Internet. You know, they, they map out everything else, so I'm sure it exists. And I know within, you know, all the different Dracula films, like he dies at the end of every film and yet somehow comes back. You know, is it really the same Count Dracula? Because a lot of times things don't connect. Kind of the same thing with, with, uh, you know, Peter Cushing and the Frankenstein films. Clearly some of the films, the first two clearly are connected. But beyond that, is it the same character? Well, arguments can be made that it's not because of certain references and certain things that happen and experiments and what have you. It's a variation of the same character, but it's not necessarily the same character. Again, continuity is, is, is much more important to us today because we have the Internet at our fingertips and we have these films instantly at our fingertips. Back then, continuity wasn't as important and they could twist and turn things to suit however they wanted and realize that, you know what, audiences aren't going to care because it's probably been three or four years since they've seen the last one anyway and if they've seen it on television they'd be lucky so
2: well this they kind of cheat here because they actually show his death at the beginning and then that way they can tie his rebirth to to the exact same thing and
1: obviously they, they did the date of 1872 because of 1972 so let's just do 100 years that makes it a nice clean jump and that's exactly why they did that Despite the fact that it may not line up with the the timeline in other films, they they didn't care, and you know what we shouldn't either because it's as my mind they're the same characters. Just disregard the years because they're the same they're the same characters that we've seen, or is it because <laughs> because Dracula dies at the end of Horror of Dracula, but yet he's Van Helsing is alive and well for brides of Dracula, and then Dracula comes back later. My head's starting to explode. Yes, yes. On Earth Two and <laughs> Earth Twelve, and yeah, don't. Okay, let's just scratch all this continuity talk, and let's just say, don't worry about it. Sit back. And it, doesn't the movie. it doesn't either. matter. Doesn't yep,
2: matter. Yep. So you mentioned uh, Stephanie Beacham, and I know uh, from previous conversations, you were a Dallas fan in the day. Did you ever watch Dynasty?
1: I was aware of it, and I would see bits and pieces of it here. I never was a Dynasty fan.
2: Yeah, so Stephanie Beecham was Sable on that and then took that into its spin-off, The Colbys. And I always know her because uh, Ricardo Montalban was also on those both shows at the time, and he would always call her Sabila. (laughs) <laughs> so that's uh, I, I, stuck in my head all these years.
1: So I've got a Star Trek connection with her.
2: I have one with Ricardo Montalban.
1: Oh, oh see, <laughs> there he goes. Yes, yes. You know, this one kind of surprised me. I, it was one of those things I forgot about. She was a guest star on an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, the episode called Ship in a Bottle. This is a kind of a, a, a cool connection because... Uh, it involves Sherlock Holmes. If you're a Next Generation fan, they had Sherlock Holmes and, and, and Moriarty I- incorporated into a couple of episodes. Data plays Sherlock Holmes and they go to the holodeck. And I think it was season two. And uh, I'm not sure, I don't think this was the episode. I think it, this one came a few seasons later where they bring the character back. But there's an actor who plays Moriarty and he becomes kind of self-aware. He ends up escaping the the holodeck at one point, uh, and through a crazy set of circumstances. Anyway, she plays she plays a, a character, Countess Bartholomew, who is involved in the holodeck storyline, involved in trying to get you know that inadvertently you know Moriarty is like wants to get out of the holodeck, and uh, they end up. He basically becomes self-aware. So he's still... He's a computerized hologram, but he's self-aware. And they end up basically putting him in this computer program that runs continuously so that he's able to live. Because... They realize that he was becoming self-aware because he realizes the passage of time in between holodeck visits. Anyway, crazy little connection. Hmm. Sherlock Holmes, how does this connect? Well, Peter Cushing would play Sherlock Holmes several times. Hound of the Baskervilles, Hammer Film with Christopher Lee. He also played uh, in the, the 1960s, a season of the television series, Sherlock Holmes. And again, one of the last films that he did was uh, 1985's um, Sherlock Holmes and the Masks of Death. I know I had a connection. Somebody, somebody wrote that. It's somewhere in my notes. Anyway, that was uh, one of the last films that he did playing an older Sherlock home it all kind of comes full circle in a roundabout sidewinding kind of way
2: and you know i have to to pause for a moment stephanie beecham is still with us she would have been a great replacement for uh, carolyn monroe at monster bash
1: she's yeah, still active she's still she's still very yeah. much so she's had
2: just a wee bit of
1: plastic surgery it looks like but she's still i haven't us. seen a current <laughs> picture of her so i'll have to take a look yeah i i, I was surprised i mean i was like I can't recall the last time I've seen her in anything, but she's still very much alive and, and continues to act. And uh, and one of those actors and actresses that you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know they were still alive. They end up, you know, doing lesser-known film work and television work, and but remain very, very active.
2: I tell you, after watching this again, I'm very, very eager to meet Christopher Neim because
1: he's terrific in this. I love that character of Johnny Alucard. He's and, a lot of fun in this one, a lot yeah, more fun than I re- remember It'd been a few years since I'd seen this, and I was like, "He's good." Yeah, he really, that face. I mean, he's he's yeah, perfect. Yeah, he's really good in this. He's another one. I was surprised at how active that he had remained over the years because, you know, he he did a lot of television work. He didn't have a hammer. He did Lust for a Vampire, but he was also in Blake Seven, which I'd mentioned before. He was also in Dallas and Dynasty uh, in guest appearances on both shows. <gasps>
2: Who did he play? Now that you say that, I remember that name in the
1: credits, and I never put two and two together. I I don't know. I didn't write down the characters that he played, but he was in several episodes of both shows. James Bond, we've mentioned several Bond references in this episode. He was in License to Kill, 1989, opposite uh, Timothy Dalton. He was also in Babylon 5, which Carl and I have just started revisiting that series. I'm having a lot of fun rewatching that. Yes, Star Trek reference. He was in start episodes of Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Enterprise. I did not know this. And he was in Doctor Who. There's another shock and surprise. He was in the unfinished story, Shada. The next to last season for Tom Baker. So his sixth season, the very last story of the season was going to be a six-parter called Shada. And there was a writer's strike. And it was only partially finished and they had to delay production and then when the writer's strike resolved they couldn't bring everyone back together because all the cast and crew had moved on to other things so they shelved the episode. They used footage of it when they did their big uh, 20th anniversary special The five doctors to incorporate Tom Baker into the story when Tom Baker didn't want to come back to play uh, the fourth doctor. They eventually put this out on VHS and DVD with bridging segments. It's now available on DVD. they fully animated using the original audio and then using new audio recorded by Tom Baker and the rest of the cast. And so I don't know if Christopher Neen came back to play his character or not. I need to do some research on that. But uh, that's kind of a, a classic lost story of Doctor E that's not really lost. It's just never finished. But it's been redone and and put out there for a few different versions over the years holy cow the things Christopher Neem has been in over the years the TV shows
2: I had no idea I probably have seen him and not realized that was him I know he's amazing this is funny he was actually in Dynasty before he was in Dallas and Dynasty came after Dallas but anyway I, I don't after all recognize these characters on Dynasty it was Hamilton Stone and on Dallas it was Gustav Hellstrom the one last thing i want to say and then you can get to all your notes is i think big spoiler alert the twist that jessica's boyfriend is a vampire that caught me off guard and i've seen the movie before i mean i think that's a twist that really did you feel it was like forced and unnatural
1: to me, it just truly surprised me. I forgot, oh my God, he is a vampire. I, I forgot about, again, it's been so long since I've seen this. No, I didn't think it was forced at all. I thought that was, that was a cool twist. Yeah. I thought, I liked it. Okay, what you got? Well, let's see. Going down the cast, just a few other mentions. Marsha Hunt plays the character of Gaynor Keating. There's a lot of different, you know, uh, sub-characters. But mentioning her, I mean, she didn't do a lot. Only 12 credits, but there's a couple that really stood out. Another Bond reference. There's so many in this episode. She was in Never Say Never Again, the 1983 non-main Bond film with Sean Connery coming back for his seventh and last time. And then she was also in uh, a film that gets a lot of notoriety, Howling 2. So we got to mention Michael Coles plays Inspector Murray. Lots of TV work. Oh, here's just shocking. Another Doctor mm-hmm. Who reference. He was in Doctor Who and the Daleks, the 1965 Peter Cushing film. Episodes of the Avengers. And he plays the same character in Satanic Rites of Dracula, like we mentioned. So, And, of course, Caroline Monroe plays Laura Bellows. We've mentioned several of the films that she's done, you know, from the Fives films to the Golden Voyages Sinbad, Captain Kronos at the Earth's Core, Star Crash, and, of course, House of the Gorgons. So, and she she's really good in this film. The music in this film—I I, want to talk about that. Great music from Mike Vickers. It's definitely that early mid '70s funky black exploitation vibe. And then you know I can't remember the music, but I'm curious because he apparently he didn't compose a lot of films—only 13—but one of the films that he credited that was credited for was *At the Earth's Core*. I can't imagine that he does a similar style score in that, but you know a lot of composers kind of have a style. Mm-hmm. Um, case in point, I watched The Car yesterday, and I'm sitting there thinking, my God, this sounds like Beneath the Planet of the Apes music. And I looked it up, and sure enough, Leonard Rosenbaum, I think, or I think that was his name. Anyway, yeah, he did Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And it's like, there was several cues in that. I'm like... Wait a minute, I'm getting a feel of the of, of the apes <laughs> storming the city. Yeah, it's exactly the same few bars of music was used uh, in the car. Anyway, one of the key segments early on in the film is a party sequence where we are being graced with the music of a band called Stone Ground. And they're announced in this movie like, we should know who they are. Well... Here in 2019, no, we don't know who Stoneground was. And you know what? Nobody did in 1972 either. Originally, the band that was going to be featured in that sequence was a band called The Faces, which, of course, featured the legendary Rod Stewart along with Ronnie Wood. Uh, A contract was even written up to to offer it to them. And then uh, it was prepared in September of 1971, but then several weeks later... Without really much explanation, at least in anywhere that I could find, and I even read was reading this information in the, uh, the great book, The Hammer Story, which is a fantastic piece of information for Hammer fans. The, the contract was, was changed to Stone Ground. Now, The Faces' best-selling album, A Nod's As Good As A Wink to A Blind Horse, came out in December of 1971. Had they gone with The Faces you would have had a a band with a hit album, and, of course, standing the test of time, this movie, I don't think, ever would have slipped into obscurity because it would have had Rod Stewart in it. And Rod Stewart, of course, hugely popular, especially in the 80s and 90s, still singing today. Stewart fans would have gone to this film to see his performance. But they went with Stoneground, and the only reason I can think they went with this band was because Stoneground was part of a uh, thing called Medicine Ball Caravan that was put together by Warner Brothers. And of course, Warner Brothers had a connection with Hammer at this time. Medicine Ball Caravan was the Warner Brothers' attempt to capitalize on Woodstock. Woodstock generated all this interest in in music and and was making money, you know, in the soundtracks and the films. So Warner Brothers wanted to capitalize on it. And so they come up with this idea of sending this caravan of 150 people, and it was a hippie caravan, 150 people going across cross-country in an 8,000-mile cross-country trip doing all these musical performances, and they were going to make a film about Medicine Ball Caravan, which was done, ironically. It was made into a film in 1971. Martin Scorsese was an associate producer, uh, the soundtrack featured music besides Stoneground we got music from the likes of Alice Cooper and B.B. King how those two ended up on the same soundtrack I'll never know so we, the two songs we get from Stoneground, Alligator Man and You Better Come Through for Me they're not good, they're, they are really bad, bad music no, they weren't hits at all for the band Stoneground never had any hits um, they were active from 1970 Until 1984, though, believe it or not, with a lot of variations uh, of members. And then they even had a revival in 2003 to 2005. Depending upon, you know, what time, at this point in time, it seemed like there was a gazillion band members and it would eventually get whittled down. But between the two active periods of time for and the band is no longer in existence, but they had no less than 24 different band members. So it was a revolving door of, of performers. They were basically the traveling house band for Medicine Ball Caravan. So they weren 't even really featured performers I don't believe in, in this tour. If they were, you know they didn't have any hit records and I guess if you're if you're high or stoned at a concert and you, and you hear music, you're probably going to enjoy it. Everyone seemed to in this opening sequence of the film. But I think the biggest claim to fame really is that Martin Scorsese was the associate producer. They were featured in this movie and three members left the band in 1973 to form Pablo Cruz, which not one of the biggest bands in rock history, but more well-known than Stone Ground. Gosh, what would have happened if they would have gone with the faces instead? That would have been, I think, a much, much, much better choice and much more interesting. And again, I predict that the movie never would have kind of had that period where it wasn't as widely known. I mean, although the movie did get played on the CBS Late movie. Back in the day, so maybe it wasn't as forgotten as we think. It certainly has a lot of love more for it now than I think it did, at least at one point. So the other big thing about this is is the connection to real-life events. There was actually a 1968 case, and it actually continued on into 1970, of supernatural and occult activity at Highgate Cemetery. Halloween night, 1968, there was activity at Highgate Cemetery... A coffin was opened. A body was disturbed. An iron stake was driven through the chest cavity of a corpse. There was all sorts of this occult activity using flowers, forming occult symbols and such. There was a televised special about you know the supernatural activity and ghosts and such seen at Highgate Cemetery that, of course, got a lot of people going and flooding there. Then in 1970... There was a charred and headless corpse discovered at Highgate Cemetery, furthering the fact that there was occult activity going on at out uh, there. And apparently, this was at least partially responsible for the elements of that into the script and, and things that Don Houghton was taking from elements happening in the day. Kind of, again, I think there was a missed opportunity from the marketing department to... You know, somehow, say based on real events of the day. I mean, of course, Dracula's not real, right? But you know, some of the events in the film they could have they could have done something. You know, they would do it now, based on a real story. You know, ripped it, from the headlines. Yeah, exactly. They they would certainly do that. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. I never knew that that there was that connection to real life events. And last but not least, this was a cool thing about the promotional aspect of the movie. Apparently, in some screenings here in the U.S. and cinemas, Barry Atwater appeared. Now, he had played, although he didn't at this point, but he would play Janice Scorzani in Kolchak the Night Stalker, which, well, when, when was that? Was that 72? 71, 72, maybe? Yeah. Maybe like that. that, maybe so there was intentionally, you know, he was seen in segments where he was, I guess, seen rising out of a coffin and asking the audience to join, to become members of the Count Dracula Society. So they were doing a little bit of some cross-promotional things there to, you know, oh, join the Count Dracula Society. I would love to know if that promotional film is out there. I I didn't do any research to see if it's out there on YouTube. It's got to exist somewhere. But I thought that was kind of interesting, a little, you know, fun little uh, promotional thing that, uh, I think we don't really see enough of in, in films today. But anyway, that's all I've got. That's a, that's my trivia. I had a lot of stuff on this one. You know, it is available on home media. Although this one hasn't been released on Blu-ray yet, I don't believe. I thought that it was. Oh, yes, it is. Has. It? Okay, because yeah, it what...
2: and Satanic Rights came out from Shout about okay, the same well, time. Okay,
1: well then good, I, because I thought that it was, but then I did a search on Amazon and I couldn't find it. So.
2: No features, zero double. F- extra
1: features well it's isn't it it's from the warner archive collection which is yeah. notorious for a lot. oh that's right it's not shout factor you're right it was yeah 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 which is why there's never any extra gotcha. features it was out on dvd uh it's also was part of a 2007 four film favorites set with horror of dracula dracula has risen from the grave and taste the blood of dracula which is the version i have And it's also, if you've got Amazon Prime, uh, it's available there to rent or buy. Of the three films, this is the more readily available. Uh, And, of course, as you mentioned, it's available on Blu-ray. This one is is definitely out there for people to see. And I recommend that they do. Yeah, it's definitely a fun film. Of the three films, this was my favorite. You know, there wasn't really anything I, I didn't like about this one. I would have loved to see more Christopher Lee. We kind of...
2: You mentioned that, but you know
1: if you had not mentioned that i wouldn't have even thought
2: of it and they've said this about the other dracula movies he may not appear in them as much but his presence is there the entire time and i think i know i don't consciously think oh he was hardly in it
1: sometimes less is more and so you don't want to see too much of christopher lee i mean that would people would say what why are you saying that no i think you could see too much of dracula in the film I think, yes, certainly. I think this is this is uh, maybe just a tad more. A couple of the films suffer from that, from a, a lack of of, uh, of Dracula presence. I would like to see him maybe just a little bit more. I, I think what we see of him is great. I think he makes the transition into modern times. I know Christopher Lee had some reservations about bringing the character to 1972, but ultimately liked the script and liked what they did with it and and enough that he would come back and do it again in Satanic Rites of Dracula. I, I think that uh, that says something as well that they did something right of course, Christopher Lee was very protective of you know, despite the fact that sometimes he didn't always I've seen in some interviews where, you know, I don't think he necessarily held the horror films as as in as high a regard as we do, but he was protective to a degree of that Dracula character and Especially when taking on movie roles, if, if he didn't really like the film. I mean, a lot of people will say, come on, Christopher Lee was in everything. And he did do a lot of stuff. You know, very, very overly prolific at times. But there were times that Christopher Lee said no. And, you know, he did not come back for Legends of the Seven Golden Vampires. And um, he, had, he was ready to move on from that role. This movie he enjoyed enough that he decided he would come back for Satanic Rites. He didn't enjoy that one as much, which is why he he decided to walk away from the character. I haven't visited that one in a long time. I kind of want to see it now that it's a sequel. I don't have a great copy of it. I've got a VHS dub of it. I, I kind of want to revisit that.
2: My favorite also, however... Dr. Jekyll's Sister Hyde is close behind that. I really, really like that movie. And then Gorgon below that. So our order's a little different, but we agree on this one.
1: We agree that this is our favorite, yeah. Then I think, yeah, our our second film is is a little different. But, you know, that does happen from time to time. It does. It does. What uh, Mr. Turek said, that we we never disagree. We do disagree sometimes, but I acknowledge, you know, what you said about Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And and maybe I don't uh, dislike it quite as much, you know, but I still have issues with that one. Sure. Uh, as with as with the Gorgon I don't really have much much wrong to say about Dracula AD. <laughs> I love the music
2: yeah.
1: uh, and I know Carla really did enjoy the, the movie she just didn't enjoy the music but she said if they would have replaced the music that would have been perfect for her she loves Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee uh, and she's loving the Hammer films so with an exception being Dr. Checklid's <laughs> Sister Hyde she she definitely loves uh, the the Dracula films so she said she wants to see all the others so you know gosh that means I'll that's have a fun to sit marathon down. i know that's like okay i will guess i'll sit down and do that
2: all right well that's our three movies for this month let's take one more break and we'll come back and wrap up the show
3: prepare for a spine tingling nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters you won't believe your ears when you listen to monster kid radio Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic monsters, modern talk, and ahead of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Team Radio.
2: Richard, for new business this month, we have so much Hammer goodness that this is going to be all Hammer all the time. You mentioned earlier, Shop Factory keeps putting out the uh, Hammer Blu-rays for June. On June 11th, it will be Frankenstein Created Woman. I want to talk about this for a sec because that was one... Well, first of all, I love the Mark Maddox art. That's reason enough Mm, to get it. However, I I always check my shelf just to see because it's just like comic books. I buy something that I think is (laughs) great and it turns out I already have it. I'll be darned if I don't have Frankenstein Created Woman on Blu-ray. It came out a few years ago from Millennium. I don't know. I didn't think it was a you know region free i don't think it was from england but Hmm. i have it on blu-ray so this is one of those where i'm gonna have to compare special features and i'm doubting very seriously even though i want that art maybe he'll have it for sale at monster bash on a
1: he has so much art there and his work is so amazing I, i every time i walk by the one from the raven that he did that i've got hanging on my wall of boris karloff and vincent price it looks like a picture I just, I have to do a double take sometimes. It was amazing work. Usually, when we
2: talk about these Blu rays that you can't get anymore, or DVDs, I guess, and how much they cost and all of that. I was rewarded this time because I looked up that millennium edition of Frankenstein Created Woman, and it's going for $72.99 on Amazon. Wow. So woohoo! I finally have something that's of some value. <laughs> of course, that might go down when the Shout Factory edition comes out. Probably but, will, yeah. But anyway, so that's that. Birthdays, I'll hammer again. We have Sandor Ellis was born June 15, 1936. He was in Evil of Frankenstein and Countess Dracula. Suzanne Farmer, June 16th, 1942. She was in Devil Ship Pirates, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and Rasputin the Mad Monk. And then David Peel, June 19th, 1920. He was the vampire bad guy in Prides of Dracula. Excellent. Anniversaries, movies released. June must be a good year for Hammer because there are probably 12 to 15 movies that all came out. I won't give the specific dates here, but I'm just going to rattle them off. Revenge of Frankenstein, Crescendo, Trace, Taste the Blood of Dracula, Shadow of the Cat, if you count it as Hammer, which I think most people do these days, Captain Cronos Vampire Hunter, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, Night Preachers, Four-Sided Triangle, Man Who Could Cheat Death, Nightmare, Horror of Frankenstein, The Lost Continent, Stop Me Before I Kill curse of frankenstein and hysteria all of those hammer movies came out in the month of june and finally in the tv terror guide tcm is pulling through this month turner classic movies with four classic hammers on june 4th a double feature of curse of frankenstein and horror of dracula june 15th the mummy the 1959 version and then june 23rd the nanny with betty davis
1: which just makes me think of of our hack exploitation that we keep yes. talking about doing. Yes. So Danny's a fun one I that was one I didn't see until a few years ago and and uh, you know <laughs> that that's, that's a fun one
2: let's flip it a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about what we're doing on our next episode and what is leading into that episode. What are We we mentioned it earlier, but Richard tell
1: us what we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks. We are headed to Mars. That's that's the we're making a low budget film. <laughs> you know, Jeff and Richard go to Mars. No, we we are headed to Monster Bash in Mars, Pennsylvania. Our first time in 2 years going. We both had to bail out last year, but Come heck or high water, we're going to be there this year. We've we've got everything lined up, ready to go. And, you know, there's a a lot of fun stuff happening, obviously, this year. First and foremost, we're looking forward to seeing uh, a wide variety of of friends that will be there. We know that Derek will be there with Monster Kid Radio and have his table set up. We know that Steve Sullivan will be there. Uh, We know that Mitch Gonzalez will be there, Steve Turek. Unfortunately, our good friend Jonathan won't be, although, you know he certainly has the best of all reasons why not to be there he continues to send us pictures of baby Stella and she is his sweetheart So we've got to get her a souvenir from the bash we've got to do something absolutely So, and uh, I I know that there's other people that are going to be there Um, you know uh, what uh, my mind has gone blank but I know that there's going to be a lot of people at at the bash so um, those are just the ones that immediately come to the top of my head I know Juan will be there uh, with his with his table, and he'll be taking my money at some point because uh, I'm in pursuit of more Santo films. I know that Mark Maddox is going to be there. They've got, a, a of course, a, a great lineup of guests. Uh, despite the fact that Caroline Monroe had to cancel, we're still getting Christopher Neame and Martin Beswick and Veronica Carlson. We're getting uh, Riku Browning. He was there two years ago. I mean, there's been some rumblings. Are they going to be doing the Rondo Award presentations? I don't think
2: so. I thought I heard that, but then I see everything now about uh, Wonderfest or
1: wherever that happens, so I'm not sure. I don't know, but considering that they've got so many people there, I mean, because Martine and and Caroline and, and Veronica won. Of course, Ron Adams won. So uh I don't I don't know, you know. They have I, their own award too though the 40s. Well they do. They do. So I don't know. So maybe, you know, in any case it it's uh that's going to be fun and of course as always there's there's Q&As and screenings and I'm particularly interested to see The Monkey's Paw, the the lost film that's being brought uh I think by was it Tom Weaver? I think is bringing a copy uh, that's been recently discovered. the The French version of the film with English subtitles. The was it the 1933 version? I think. You know, I'm dying to see that film. Actually, uh, Revenge of the Creature is going to be the the drive-in feature outside. Um, so that should be a lot of fun, weather permitting. Uh, of course, there's the the prize toss, the free burritos and tacos at the Mexican horror flick that. I can't remember the name of the movie, but I'm interested in it. It's, it's not even going to have, it's not in English and there's no subtitles, So it's going to be, let's just watch this flick and and see what we get. But it's one that, oh, it's got the, the one with the monastery. Anyway, I, 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 know the title and I know that that, it just sounds and looks atmospheric. Some of the pics I've seen of it. Gosh, I know that, you know, there's so many other things happening. Um, I'm just looking forward to to going and and uh you know hopefully we'll get some audio you know we're gonna jeff's gonna have his recorder and so hopefully we can get some audio um you know m- maybe maybe not with the the panels but definitely if we can corner some of our friends into speaking into the microphone we'll have some fun little random uh, q and a 's and i think it'll be a lot of fun and uh uh, I'm just, you know, it's been two years since we've gone. I'm, I'm I'm, looking forward to going, and it's a incredibly long drive to get there and a long drive home, but once we're there, um, we won't be getting any sleep either. So it'll be a very, very long five days, but uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. What about you? What are you looking forward to at uh, Monster Bash 2019?
2: All of that. You know, earlier you said uh, we'd get some audio, and I automatically went to, gosh, what would we have to do to get... Martin Beswick to do a bumper for our show or get a quick interview with Veronica Carlson or something but no you're talking about our friends and and that's that's really the main reason you go to bash we've talked about that before that's where you get to be with your people the the friends you see once a year when you go to this and that really you know, that's truly what I'm most looking forward to.
1: Well, and, you know, I, I had this discussion, you know, within the last few weeks because, um, you know, I'm on a budget these days, you know, which I should have been all along, but I'm actually in, in getting, being on this budget's allowing me to enjoy all these things I have in my collection that I've never been able to enjoy because when you get to this point where you're collecting but not really enjoying what you're collecting because you're, you've, you've bought so many DVDs and I know this is a topic that everyone has the same problem. They've got stacks and stacks of movies they bought but they never have time to watch them. I, you know, I've slowed down my purchasing substantially on DVDs and and comic books and books. I'm actually really enjoying it because I'm actually getting a chance to finally watch movies and read that have been sitting on my shelf for so long. That said, of course I want, you know, to come back with more Santo films and and uh, I was kind of lamenting that, gosh, I, I don't have the, the big budget like I used to, and and my wife just kind of looked at me, and she said, is that really the reason you're going to Monster Bash? She says, I thought you were going, and I, I <laughs> stopped her mid-sentence, and I said, that's the reminder that I needed. I said, you're absolutely right. I'm going there because I get to spend 75 hours in the car with my friend <laughs> Jeff. No, I get to spend a weekend with my good friend here, and we get to meet up with our friends bring a few things back. I'm sure we both will be spending some money, but mostly it's just there to, to enjoy the weekend and see some, some people and, and, you know, along the way we'll see some films and catch some Q and A's and just have a really good time as, as Derek always says over at monster kid radio, you know, this is this tribe. These, these are people that we interact with all year long. I haven't seen Steve Sullivan in a long time because I, I have not been able to make it to the last two Christopher R. Mim premieres. I will definitely be at the ones he does next year, but hopefully, I say that, hopefully I'll be able to be there, but I haven't seen Steve Sullivan for a while, so I'm looking forward to to seeing all these these people that we talk to and, and um, just having a good weekend. That
2: makes a good transition into next month's episode. You mentioned being in the car for 75 hours with me. I think I know why you want to do this next episode so bad because you won't have to talk to me if we do this. So <laughs> so tell everyone what we're going to cover besides our Monster Bash coverage.
1: Well, you know, I, I wanted to do um, something a little different because we call ourselves the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. And while we always cover films, we have, you know, gone into some other things. We've done some Dark Shadows television episodes. And so we're going to be doing some audio next time. You know, there's so much good horror and science fiction audio out there, both current and from the golden age of radio. This is kind of, I guess, somewhere in between. You know, the golden age of radio would be 30s, 40s, 50s, and early 60s. And then you get into... You know, anything kind of from that time period of the late 60s or 70s, even though it's been decades ago, isn't quite the golden age, but it's that era where new audio radio dramas really weren't being produced with great regularity, but there were some really good stuff being produced. And there's been two BBC sci-fi radio presentations that I've had on audio for a while, one of which I have listened to many years ago, the other I have never listened to. And I thought it'd be fun if we listened to him in the car, either on the way there or on the way back... ...and uh, actually incorporated into our episode next month. So we're going to be covering the slide from 1966... ...which features in supporting role, not the main role, but Roger Delgado... ...who played the master on on Doctor Who... ...and Aliens in the Mind from 1977. Uh, Again, these were both BBC radio presentations... Aliens in the Mind features Vincent Price and Peter Cushing, which is an amazing duo. So I thought it'd be fun. So next month's episode will be a little different, doing Monster Bash and doing the the radio dramas. And we've already kind of given you the sneak peek that August will be back on track with films with our tribute to Faye Ray. And uh, we don't know what the films are yet, but that's coming up uh, in August. And we kind of have an idea what the rest of the year is going to be about. But... Uh, right now, our eyes and, and our goal is Monster Bash in mere weeks.
2: What are you up to right now, Richard, on your blog and your other podcasts? Uh, let us know where your fans can find you in your work. You know what I haven't
1: covered is the Limehouse Golem. <laughs> are you? You're actually going to bring that up again? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I've covered it. I, you know, how many times have I said I'm going to do it? You know what? I'm telling you right now, I haven't covered it in the last 30 days, but. I probably won't cover it in the next 30 <laughs> You know, honestly, I, I I joke with that, but that, that's become, I mentioned this the other day because I was listening to an old episode where I talked about in March, I was going to cover this and, and Carla looked at me and she said, yeah, that didn't happen, did it? And I said, no. And she says, you know, you really need to do that. And I said, I do. But I have done some stuff for Dread Media and uh, my Martian Mondays series, uh, I extended it by a few weeks. So believe it or not, As we record this, it is Memorial Day weekend. By the time you hear this, it will be past. But um, I have one more movie left, um, and that's War of the Worlds. We're going to end that on Memorial Day with one of the best and the biggest of the the Martian movies. That was a first-time viewing for Carla and and first time for me, and actually quite a while. It was a lot of fun. And then um, totally non-sci-fi horror genre related. We're starting a new series for the Marx Brothers. When I launched Kansas City Cinephile back in 2016, the intent was to do something, a website that I could cover anything and everything. I really can't cover Marx Brothers over at Monster uh, Movie Kid, but I can cover it on KC Cinephile. And so we're going to be doing a weekly series. It launched last week with my kind of introduction to the Marx Brothers. And then we're going to be doing one movie a week, It's going to be called Summer Marks is On, and it'll go all the way through probably, I think, at least the third week of September. But we're going to be covering all of the Marx Brothers movies, um, several of of Groucho's solo films, and then kind of wrap up with a a generalized, you know, kind of the end of the Marx Brothers. And I think along the way, we might have some bonus uh, postings that won't appear. All of these are going to hopefully appear on Wednesday. We'll probably have a few bonus ones. I want to cover... Um, Some of the audio works of the Marx Brothers, as well as some of their televised work. Uh, Groucho did, uh, for example, a uh, straight dramatic appearance uh, in one of his uh, televised appearances in the 1960s. And Chico actually did an appearance on television, which a lot of people don't remember. So I figured that would be fun. Beyond that, you know, I got some stuff coming up on Dread Media. I did some Martian movies over there. And then I've got um, this upcoming Win Monday is The Curse of La Clorona. I did a review of that, again, which will probably be a few weeks in the past by the time you hear this. I also did a review on Blood Feast. I'm kind of percolating, but I think I'm going to be doing some audio reviews, possibly on The Car, which I just watched, because that was on Shutter. They're getting ready to pull it off already, and uh, as well as a film I watched last night that is just in my brain, Blood Harvest from 1987 with Tiny Tim. Watched it on Joe Bob, so I, I think I'll be covering some of those uh, obscurities, although the car is not an obscurity. Blood Harvest is obscure, and rightfully so. KCCinephile.com, MonstermovieKid.wordpress.com. What about you?
2: Well, I thought I had figured out my woes with my uh, blog and the uh, posting things to Facebook, Worked for about a day and I had the same thing happen again. So to get around that, I've created a new domain, classichorror.club Club without the S. Both will work. The first one redirects, but whenever I post anything now, it will be from the singular Classic Horror Club, Classic Horror Club. Uh, hopefully that that works. I just could not get any response or any help fixing that. But lots of good stuff has been on there. I Started informally uh, this month. I've done an Amicus film that I have not seen every week, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Plus, I felt like I was a bit of a copycat for for Derek and his theme months. But I was going to do a Maycus, you know, for the month of Amicus, May for Amicus, for Amicus, Amicus films. Amicus, Amicus. Amicus. So that, it's kind of in my head. That's what it is. i'm just not publicizing it because that's kind of silly. But so I've been doing that. That's lots of fun so that's it then i guess give us a call at our hotline 616-649-2582 that's 649 club rate us on itunes reach out on the facebook group book page send us smoke signals carrier pigeon messages anything you can to communicate and participate in the conversation we do truly appreciate it richard if you have nothing else
1: I don't, other than uh, thank you for your time and consideration. Uh, As always, thank you for for everything you do over on Facebook and for listening in. We continue to get more and more listeners who are really leaving some great comments. And it's making us feel like, gosh, you really do like us. So uh, looking forward to seeing everybody at the bash who's listening to this. And we'll be back next month.
2: Yep. So we'll leave with the song Dracula AD 1972. It's by the Pocket Gods. From their 2012 album, The Land of the Giants. And that is, with everything else, available on iTunes. We'll see you next month. Take care.